0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher
2: Media, let's make some noise. From another time comes a man of great power.
3: Talk funny, Nash, where are you from? Lots of different places.
2: A warrior
4: of incredible strength.
1: You've the devil in you. We've been kinsmen twenty years. Connor McLeod was my kinsman. I don't know who you are. Because you were born
5: different. Men will fear you. Try to drive you away.
0: A man uncertain
4: of his future. What you got here, Brenda? It's a guy who's been creeping around since at least 1700. It's not possible. And haunted by his past. Wait
6: a minute, Nash. I want some answers.
1: You cannot die, McLeod. I'm Conor McLeod of the Clan McLeod. I was born in
6: 1518 in the village of Glenfinnan on the shores of Loch Shiel.
2: I am immortal. A hero who is about to face his greatest challenge. You will always be weaker than
6: I. What can you tell me about a seven-foot lunatic hacking away with a broadsword at one o'clock in the morning in New York City, 1985? Not much,
2: for he is not alone.
5: The only one, uh. Uh.
2: Uh. 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 Highlander, there can be only one.
7: Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Josh Hadley. You will always be weaker than I. Also with us this week is Mr. Mike Thompson. There can be only one. For this, the 300th episode of the show, we are taking a look at the 1986 film Highlander, directed by Russell Mulcahy and based on a screenplay by Gregory Wyden. The film was initially a box office flop. I've read reports that it it cost about 19 million and only earned back 13 of that but it found new life on VHS spawning a bizarre franchise which we'll be talking about in the second half of the show before we get into things i want to warn folks that there are spoilers ahoy so if you haven't seen the original Highlander 30 years ago it was released you guys have had 30 years to kind of catch up on this thing really 30 years that's crazy wow Oh, anyway, go ahead, turn off the podcast, and come back, and we'll still be here. So, Josh, when was the first time you saw Highlander, and what did you think?
8: I sent you a promo earlier, an HBO promo. I saw this on HBO, and they sold me a different movie. They've stolen, silently, down
2: through the past. Because you were born different, men will fear you. They're here, now, somewhere
1: in the present. Where are you from? Lots of different places. They are already hoarding the future. So what you got here, Brenda? There's a guy who's been creeping around since at least 1700. Not possible. They are very few. In the end, there can be only one. And they are immortal. You cannot die, McCloud.
6: Except
1: in Christopher Lennon and Sean Connery star in Highlander.
8: Monday on HBO. They really sell this as a science fiction time travel movie. That's what my 12-year-old brain thought I was getting. And I... I still liked the movie, but it was not the film I thought I was going to see on HBO because I I was reading Fangoria and Starlog and all that at the time. And Starlog actually had this on the cover of one issue when it was first coming out in theaters. I didn't know what it was. So I first saw it on HBO and I loved it. But because of that damn promo, I was so disappointed at first because I wanted a time travel movie. How about you, Mike?
4: I think the first time I saw this, I had rented it yeah, I rented it with a friend of mine and it had already sort of been ruined for me on a personal level because my brother got to see it in the theater and I didn't. So I thought that was, you know, (laughs) like at the time, that was like the worst thing that could happen because I never wanted him to be ahead of me with regard to anything. And so, yeah, I remember watching it and my friend and I were sitting there and and I, I think there were at least two or three different lines that I predicted as they were happening, right? Like she goes, "I'm candy," and I just said, oh, "Of course you are." And then he, and then the Kurgan says, "Of course you are." And my friend's getting more and more irritated with, you know, with me because he's like, "Have you seen this before?" I'm like, "No, I haven't seen it before," but <laughs> but almost, you know, it was, it, I'd seen enough things like it, I guess. But I remember at the at at first, I didn't really like it. I thought it was just kind of, it was just okay. I don't know what I was expecting because, like Josh was saying, I, I remember that Starlog um, magazine where it, that that was it was sold to me, and I think this was also the year that I had some weird. I made some weird decision that I was only going to see ten movies that year, and and this w- but this was one of them. So of course you know saving this one and then seeing it, I think I've just set myself up for disappointment. But then. You know, he came back around again. It was one of those things that just ended up becoming part of my life and for the longest time. And my wife's life, too, like it not six months wouldn't go by where that movie wasn't on at least one time in this house. Is it true that one of your son's name is Connor? That is true.
7: Is it true that it is a reference to the Highlander?
4: It may not be false. It's one of those things my wife would if she, if when when asked, she would say, no, 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 that's not true. But it's pretty much true.
8: Are you ever going to take him to the island of Glen, the village of Glenfinnan at some point, and say, "This is where you hail from, son"? Absolutely, and then I <laughs> and then I expect him to. Um get his own uh, uh,
4: whatever that is whatever kind of blade that is and uh, and lead himself to glory at some point was
7: oh, that a, a Claymore correct?
4: yes a Claymore, a Claymore I didn't actually realize that when I was reading the first draft and they said claymores. I'm like I wonder what those are <laughs> I looked it up I saw this one I
7: think I have Corey Brandis to thank for this one this was probably like junior high into high school kind of age for me and this was definitely when the video store was a central part of my life especially going over to this was uh, i mean blockbuster was around but i think i was too young to drive to blockbuster there was none within walking distance but there was a little mom and pop video store at the corner of uh sibling and fourth street called i think fox video and uh used to go in there all the time and rent stuff and i believe that i rented this there and god i, I Just totally fell in love with it. I I really enjoyed this movie. Loved the music. I didn't realize that, you know, I kind of wasn't really into rock music at the time, so I really didn't understand, you know, like who Queen was. I knew that they had done the score for Flash Gordon, but I really wasn't familiar with this. And then I never really even thought that I could... Like listen to those songs outside of the movie for some reason until years later when I had another friend who was going through this whole queen phase and he had the uh, 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 kind of magic uh, cassette tape uh, that that also dates us and was playing stuff from that. I'm like, oh my god, this is music from the Highlander. This is amazing! (laughs) (laughs) And that they had the audio quotes and everything. Oh my god, this is terrific!
8: You also got to remember, all of us, after telling these stories, we all saw what is really that disastrous american version well that's the only one that i'm used to though i grew up on that one as i think we all did and just like with the abyss terminator 2 aliens leon the professional i cannot watch that version again after seeing the director's cut or in this case the international version it is such a fucking disaster After you see all the scenes that were supposed to be there.
4: I don't think I've ever actually seen – I think I've seen the original version maybe two or three times. I've watched the director's cut so much that I can't remember the other one.
7: Oh, it, it is very apparent to me because I watched the original so much and I've only ever seen the director's cut twice. Once, one time I had to buy it from Video Search of Miami when it was still rare to the shores of the United States. And the second time was yesterday. <laughs>
8: <laughs> See, I, I, I think it just – it makes more sense. It flows better. It's paced better. The characters are deeper. For one thing, the relationship with Rachel completely makes sense instead of being just kind of a – So does she know he's immortal? Is that his mom, sort of? What the hell is – oh, okay. Because I actually think that's one of the richest things in the director's cut because she – Rachel, when he rescues her from the Nazis, it goes from like a father-daughter relationship and then they heavily imply as she grows older, they become like a lover-type relationship and then sort of a mother-son relationship, which is really kind of neat. Yeah, that was one of the things that I was
4: happy that was that exists in this current version because, like, when I'm reading the scripts that uh, that uh, that you shared, it's that was one of the, like that piece of it in the script is so much more detailed and it adds so much more depth to both of their characters. And the, unfortunately, this is still it, the. the director's cut is is still not as in-depth as i would like but i agree completely like it's so much better to have that sequence in there where he rescues her because it speaks so much to his own character and 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 his own humanity and stuff like that well
8: and it also gives us the line of it's a kind of magic which also makes no sense in the american (laughs) cut because it just he says it once as he's going to fight the kurgan and thinking he's going to die and we're like Okay, but then when you have the Nazi scene, you go, "Okay, that's a really nice callback. That was her introduction to Connor and what he thinks will be his exit as well." Right. And why
4: this matters so much to her and to him that this is this may be the end of their relationship.
8: Exactly. And then and then she's just I know we'll get into it later, but she's unceremoniously killed after three lines of dialogue in the fucking Endgame movie. <laughs> Just even more – it was even it would, have been, it would have been less infuriating for her to not have been there at all.
7: Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you can first tell it's the director's cut versus the original, the first thing that jarred me the other night when I was watching it was him at the wrestling match and the flashbacks to the Heinlein. And I'm like, well, what the the hell's going on here? And I had to look it up really quick. I'm like, has it been this long since I've seen it that I don't remember this? Or is this part of the director's cut? So I looked it up, and sure enough. But I guess it makes more sense when the guy touches his shoulder and kind of wakes him from this flashback moment, his thoughts of of the Highland, rather than him just being kind of like pissed off when this guy touches his shoulder in – the cut that I'm used to, so I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I guess that makes sense. And then seeing, you know, there's there's some more stuff in the Madison Square Garden parking garage where the the one swordsman is doing all these flips and all this kind of stuff. And like, okay, well, I'm 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 seeing now that these guys are not just regular dudes having a sword fight in Madison Square Garden parking lot as people are wont to do. You know, I mean, that happens probably <laughs> it's happening three, right four now. times. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that it is. So, but you know, oh, these guys are special people that are See, having Mike, a short fight. Th- the
8: problem is, it's because he was at a wrestling match. If they'd had it at a hockey match, like in the original script, I don't know if that would have come across as just so normal. Because <laughs> it, it was kind of ironic. They didn't want it to be a wrestling match. They they actually thought wrestling was kind of lowbrow. They wanted it to be hockey, but the NHL wouldn't sign off on it. <laughs> I'm not kidding.
7: Oh I'd completely believe it. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm sure they were so pumped up after seeing the wrestling match that they were just like, you know, the kids that want to, like, imitate the wrestlers and end up, you know, crippling each other for life and stuff. But instead, they had swords,
8: just (laughs) conveniently hidden slash placed slash carried swords. That must have been very uncomfortable for him sitting in his seat like that. It's even worse. The TV series does that even worse, where... There's no possible way that sword could have been concealed and they just pull it out of like their jeans and you're like, Shut up <laughs> That's why I was
7: walking with that <laughs> stiff leg the whole time. I, I mean it makes it easy to put in these moments that we've been talking about from the director's cut because we bounce around in time like crazy so you could add things and take things away without it being too jarring because it flows so well and there are times where it's like oh hey remember that time you know when he's when he's talking to the one guy on the bridge and it's like hey remember that one time we got super drunk and you ended up uh, you know having this duel i mean they could have cut that out so easily, so it's it's simple the way that they kind of dropped in the Nazi uh, plot line, the Rachel plot line, I should say, and then we're able to take it out for the American version. So I can see where having that. I mean, really, that's that's the biggest thing for me is is having that Rachel plot line in there, and I will agree that that does definitely. Uh, make the movie a lot more satisfying so i 'm not going i 'm going not going to sit here and argue that the uh, the
8: original version is better it 's just not the one that i 'm used to well and then that whole the whole right. thing with Castigier was supposed to show that they were they were great friends who weren 't exactly looking forward to being the last two because they didn 't really want to cut each other 's heads off but w- whatever is compelling them to do this was going to force them to do it. And a whole lot of Castigier stuff was lost in that big fire where uh, just tons of deleted scenes where only stills exist that are literal lost scenes are. So Castagir, we were supposed to care more when we saw the Kurgan killing him. And you can tell by the way that his death scene is played. We were supposed to care more than this is a guy who Connor had a scene with.
7: You know it's weird there's like a, a a strange Star Wars uh connection with Highlander here as I'm like looking up uh, the guy that played Castigar. Yeah. You know he was in The Phantom Menace and then I love that the guy who played the the first swordsman that we talked about Facil I love that he he's more known as a stuntman than he is as as an actor and his profile picture on IMDb is of a Tuscan raider. <laughs> It's like, thanks. That makes it very easy to recognize this guy.
6: <laughs>
8: and then he does the last part backwards. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Damn superstitious asshole scared yeah. away by a really fake Obi Wan Kenobi noise. You know, for years in my head, I always confused the love interest,
7: Brenda. I always mixed her up with the woman who played the um the the scientist in Star Trek 4. Like in my mind they were always the same actress. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why. But I was I was just like whenever I saw that woman from Star Trek 4 I'd be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, she was great in Highlander." The woman from
8: Child's Play? Uh I guess so. Yeah, I've yeah, only seen so Child's often... Play once. Yeah. Okay. I actually think Roxanne Hart is quite gorgeous in this movie. Oh yeah. Especially after the Silver Cup fight and her hair's all wet and with the beautiful blue lighting, she's super gorgeous during that final battle. She must be making some good Highlander
7: money because when I tried to look her up to uh, invite her to be on the show, the only thing that was out there was like, you know, contact this person for personal appearances. And I was just like, oh, great. So she's probably doing the convention circuit like crazy. She's she's on a lot of different TV shows.
8: Yeah. Uh, yeah, She's on Chicago Hope for a couple of years. She's on Law and Order for a couple of years. She she does a lot of procedurals.
4: Yeah, she's on something. I can't. I think she was just announced as a, a regular on some other thing that just started up too. So yeah, she's she uh, <laughs> of she's definitely working a lot more than Lambert is. <laughs> well, he's he he does stuff here he and there. Does, though. he does. But she just seems to have had a big career in TV, which kind of surprised me because when I looked her up. because, like Josh was saying, like, man, she is beautiful. Like, (laughs) where is she now? I was surprised at all, just the long list of credits she
7: had. Well, and then Clancy Brown, I mean, his career has just been absolutely incredible. And I don't know about you, Mike, but, I mean, he's in my life almost every single day with SpongeBob SquarePants.
4: You know, I think when I watched uh, Highlander once when it was on Joe Bob Briggs, and I think, I even remember him, Joe Bob talking about how Clancy Brown, when he was the Kurgan was in character, insisted on being in character all the time, and so I just imagine him when he's on the, you know, when he's working on SpongeBob SquarePants, he, he's Mr. Krabs all the time. So he has to be called Mr. Krabs. He has the same voice the whole time. It's just. <laughs> Anytime he sees
7: like a nickel roll he was by, sk- he's chasing he after it, sk- <laughs> skittering after it on
1: little...
4: Donate to the children's fun? Why? What have children ever done for me?
1: I don't care about the children. I just care about their parents' money.
8: See, when it comes to Clancy Brown, other than Highlander, I'm almost going to remember him as John Danziger from Earth 2.
4: For me, he'll always be uh, Rawhide from Buckaroo uh, Banzai. And, uh, and Zim from Starship Troopers. Oh, God. So good
7: in that. And then, God, I mean, he was so awesome in Carnival. I loved him in that. And I'm still so pissed that they cut off that fucking series. <laughs> he was He owned that series. I mean, he did so many great things. I mean, fuck Nick Stahl. I mean, he was supposed to be our protagonist. But I'm all about Brother Justin in that one. It's just like, he was so awesome. And then, you know, of course, like, So many people know him for being in um, the Shawshank Redemption, where he was also amazing. I mean, it's funny when I look at his stuff, it's like, I know that I love him as an actor i'm always a fan whenever i see him in anything but then when i think about it it's like well he's only got like five or six roles and we've mentioned pretty much all of them that that stick out for me every single time where it's just like oh yeah yeah he's he's fantastic in that and the other one that i always go back to is john dies at the end i loved him in
8: that one or Agamon, have you guys ever seen one of his very first roles where he eats his own booger and some green beans in bad boys
7: no,
8: no. <laughs> I can't say that I have. Uh, no, I'm talking the Sean Penn bad right. boys, not the Michael Bay bad boys. Yeah, he, he wants to show how tough he is in this boy's prison. So he picks <laughs> his nose, rubs it in the green beans and eats it to show how tough he is. <laughs> and, 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 then, and then Sean Penn beats him into submission with a pillowcase full of Coca-Cola cans.
4: Sean Penn beats Clancy Brown into submit. That just seems ridiculous to me. It was
8: the early '80s. I mean, you know. I know
4: I understand it's what had to happen, but it just I, <laughs> I'm having a very hard time accepting it in my mind. Because Clancy Brown always seems like this giant force. He's in *Hail Caesar*, and so is Christopher Lambert. <laughs> um, both of them only briefly, and they don't interact. But even even then, Clancy Brown—he's just maybe like two or three scenes, but he's so good. You know, funny thing about Clancy Brown—he's actually only
7: five foot four. <laughs> He just portrays hype. He's a very method actor. Exactly. It's
4: his presence is overwhelming.
7: That's
8: all due to clever, clever editing. We are so far
7: afield of the plot of this film, which has... So is the film.
4: I think i can guess what you think of Highlander. i'm going to get my opinion which is this is sort of like a garage sale Good. at the house of a berserk screenwriter you got movie it. It has a little bit of everything immortality sword fights ancient legends muscular heroes exploding automobiles wise old men beautiful women bloody beheadings and lightning crackling through the sky it has an especially lot of beheadings and mm. lightning in fact occasionally people's fingertips just tingle with all of
7: the excess electrical
8: energy in the story
7: we can kind of go linearly or we can jump around like we're we've been doing and like this movie likes to do uh it's really the story of a guy who finds out that he's a mortal he's a highlander from um the highlands of scotland uh with one of the most bizarre accents ever but he is from lots of different places as he as he does try to say later on in the
8: film. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I'm still not convinced about that story because there's some people say it's because Christopher Lambert, this is one of his first English language roles that he couldn't master the the languages. And then on the commentary, they talk about how, see, he's traveled the world so much, he's absorbed everyone's accent. So they specifically asked him to have no specific accent. And I'm like, I'm not sure I'm believing that. Yeah, it's 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 a nice idea, but I'm pretty sure he was just still working on mastering
4: English while he was making this movie.
3: You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from?
4: Lots of different places.
7: It's just kind of funny when you hear all these very authentic-sounding Scotsmen speaking, and then Christopher Lambert kind of in the mix.
8: And yet, ironically enough, the one actual Scotsman on the cast, they cast as an Egyptian Spaniard. (laughs) Right. Because why the hell not at this point, right?
7: Makes a lot of sense. He could have been using him as the dialogue coach, but no. <laughs> well,
8: that, that also he was only there for two about, weeks. That also makes me wonder about Ramirez. Okay, if he says he was originally Egyptian, I highly doubt his name was Ramirez when he was <laughs> Egyptian.
4: Well, he's been around for 2,000 years. I mean, this is just the name that he finally settled on, I would imagine. He's also from lots of different places. <laughs> lots of different places.
7: So the Highlander, Christopher Lambert, Connor McLeod, Ends up realizing that he cannot be killed. He's driven out of his village because people think that he's a witch. And he ends up meeting this woman, Heather, who uh, he will soon
4: outlive um,
7: in way a couple of Way better than years. his
8: first
4: wife. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I didn't think she was his wife. She was just like his love interest. Not enough bad happened to her. <laughs> the
7: first person to turn against him. Yeah driving this guy out of the village and everything, yeah. But yeah, Heather is fantastic, and it's around that time that he ends up meeting Ramirez, as we talked about, played by Sean Connery, who comes in, and for no really good reason... I still don't understand why any of these guys are friends with one another. I guess if you're going to be
4: immortal, it's good to have a buddy. That was one of the things I found kind of interesting in the... I think it was the draft that wasn't written by... was it Wyden? Um, Where they kind of explained that. That draft actually... Tried to explain a lot of things. I thought and some of it, some of it was successful, but it was, it was about like, look, we have to. Some of us are not good, and we kind of have to stick together and deal with the not good people, <laughs> and then we'll we'll deal with each other afterward. So that made sense in that draft. But yeah, none of that is in the movie.
8: The TV series kind of retcons that a little bit and tries to explain that as they they have sort of an instinct to, along with what Mike said there, to kind of protect the newbies. Because you don't become immortal until you die what they call the first death. So like the TV series has a 12-year-old that's an immortal. He died for the first time when he was 12 and he's like 1,000 years old. So what kind of hell did he have to live through as a 12-year-old forever? And that when an immortal encounters someone who will be immortal, they can tell kind of the same way they have that sense when another one is around. and. And they they kind of have like a parenting instinct, if you will. The TV series very much has lots of that of you want to take on your little apprentice or it just kind of is a way to get characters to interact and it's really cheap, whichever way you want to go.
7: I will put this out on the table right now. I refuse to watch the TV series. I refuse (laughs) to watch anything past Highlander 2. I'm not going to use the C word. I'm not going to say canon. But to me, they just don't exist. Because after the abortion that Highlander 2 was, I will not go any further into this godforsaken realm so let's let's try to stick to one for now and then we can go into that
8: that uh, hellhole in the second part of the show i'm just saying that the tv series did attempt to explain your question but i don't care i don't care about the tv series (laughs) fine i'm just saying that they did kinda i don't care fine that's all i'm saying so
7: let's talk about this, the screenplays here because we have brought this up a couple of times. So it was originally written by Gregory Wyden. And Mike, did you have a chance to kind of go through that one? Oh, yeah. I, I read
4: all, I read those three. I was uh, unsuccessful in finishing the the <laughs> the, the script for Highlander 2. You couldn't even finish the movie or I, the screenplay. I, I mean, and it, coming from me, as we can get into later, that is pretty, I've clearly gone through a pretty significant change. But. Um, yeah. But yeah, I read I read all of those. I found the first the first draft interesting in the sense that I didn't feel that that the characters were all that well developed. Like the Kurgan was just a plot device. I felt like in the original draft, but I did like the concept of Connor sort of struggling with losing his humanity over time, where he had just been at this so long that he didn't really know what the point of anything was, and he was maybe two or three bad days away from just being as bad as the Kurgan was. I don't think they did they not mention the I don't think the quickening was mentioned in that draft at all, was it? I don't think it was, no. Cuz like in the in the other draft that were which was when the other two writers uh attempted it, then that that's when the the quickening was introduced and that one felt a little bit felt much more fleshed out to me. And also, but, but there's like, I think it was like page, right on page 60 when they were, exp- when Ramirez is explaining what the quickening is and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh, they're, they're, they're trying to pull this together, but this is getting a little too midi-chlorian for me. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just, that's the, the third draft, which was pretty much the movie. I was like, okay, this is, I'm a little more comfortable with this. Yeah, Weidenstraff
7: was interesting because it, it really focuses on the the Brenda character in that one. She's called Brenna. Yeah. And the way that she is investigating Connor, who in that one is Russell Edwin Nash, and really trying to find out. I mean, that really focuses on the whole thing of how he would assume the identities of these uh children that were killed in childbirth and stuff and just i mean we have a little bit of that in the final product but i mean she really goes into and it's this whole thing of her investigating this stuff when she really shouldn't be investigating and i think it's what uh garfield is the other detective who Mm -hmm. is um kind of on the you know she doesn't work really for the police if memory serves no i
4: don't think she does in that draft
7: Right. So she is really on the house. So she's really doing this investigation all on her own. She's
4: driven more by like the sword, I think, in that draft,
7: right? Exactly. Which, which again, kind of is still in the final version, but again, it, it really kind of... I mean, she makes a reference to the sword shouldn't exist, right. and finding this sword is like
4: finding a 747... Right, or a thousand years before the Wright brothers flew, I think was the was the line. <laughs> I couldn't believe that actually made it all the way to the final
7: product. (laughs) (laughs) But they never really kind of like go into why that sword would be the way that it is. I mean, I suppose Zeist. Ramirez talks about
4: that at one point when he he talks about his his one wife, his last wife, and how it was her father who made it and he was a genius. So I felt like that was just his way of saying like, he was a genius. He was out of his time, and that's how that happened.
8: <laughs> am, I, am I am I the only one that, when watching this movie again, when that scene came up, I just I just pictured Sonny Chiba sitting in a room folding the mattress. That was the Hattori Hanzo. Of course. Yeah. It, that's, what I, that's, what, that's, that's what I pictured, and I'm like, you know what? That actually works in a strange way.
7: So, yeah, he's not even the Kurgan in that first draft. He's the knight. Right. And you're right. Connor is, or or Nash is. He doesn't care about innocent bystanders at all. And that, that's one of the things that, that Brenna is on his ass about. Is like, right. hey, this guy just killed three people. Don't you care? And he was like, what do I care? I've, been, you know, I've seen so many thousands <laughs> of people die over the years. Yeah, what? Three more? Who cares? They were going to die anyway. Eventually. And I'll still out. <laughs> that Connor,
8: that Connor McCloud would have never rescued
7: Rachel.
4: No, No. No, that's true. He never would have. And I don't even think there is a Rachel in the story no there's not because like a lot of the end of that draft is is the two of them trying to like he if trying to create his new identity that he's going to assume You know, where he's going to transfer all the money to her. I remember reading that, like, this is so much more important right now than the fact that he has to go kill this guy and win the prize and everything. Like, we're spending so much time on these legal aspects of this. It was, I just found that really odd. Law and order.
7: Yeah. (laughs) Reading that second draft when when, uh, Peter Bellwood and Larry Ferguson came in. Yeah, it was just. It was night and day and it was like, Oh, okay, this is this is the movie I know. And they did have some of that, you know, kind of moving around in time. You know, the first Highlander was not a linear story. And he even had some of the um kind of the match cuts of things from one to another, though nowhere near what Mulcahy would do in the, the final film. And that's one of the things that really stood out for me is the way that we when we go back and forth in time, there's usually a device. You know, it's God, like coming out. God, those edits
8: are so beautiful. <laughs> are you being sarcastic? No, or not? I, 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 I mean it. Mulcahy's edits—you, you can see his music video background coming in there. The, the, the way, the way he would edit, like through the water of the fish tank, up through the mm-hmm. lake, and then they're in, you know, old Scotland and all that. Those are some gorgeous edits. Yes, I agree, and that was
7: the thing that really took this movie from what could have been like a sword and fantasy kind of thing in 1986 when i first saw it on video i was just like wow that was really cool how they did that which is kind of remarkable remarkable to me that i even realized that that was happening when i was what 14 years old but i was it really it it stood out so much for me that that was one of the things that i've
8: carried with me for all this time Of like wow how wonderful those edits are Yeah, because it was it was very unique and very original how they how they did it. Which again, like I said, go back and watch some of the music videos Mulcahy directed before that, or even the movie Razorback, the the Aussie movie he did. You can see a lot of that style. He he seems to be the kind of guy who when he's directing, you know how when you're directing, you you'll go this doesn't this won't cut together, or this will cut together with this. He looks at what can I use in the scene to make these cut together. That's a beautiful eye. There's one also where I can't remember what they're focused on, but then they just pull out, and as
4: they're pulling out, you realize it's right on Connor's eye. And then it just comes out, and his full face comes in. That's the one that I'll always remember. I think that might be one of the first ones that we get. Yeah, really
7: breathtaking.
8: Well, and then you, you also have like the, the – where, where he's showing Brenda how he's immortal and they're just spinning around the room multiple mm-hmm. times around that, that gorgeous circle couch. That yeah. scene actually was so unique it made the cameraman throw up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking. The cameraman got vertigo from how many times they had to spin around. At the heart of this movie is a
7: good guy versus a bad guy. Connor McCloud – throughout history, and then the Kurgan, played by Clancy Brown. And the Kurgan, God, I love the Kurgan. (laughs) Love the Kurgan. I love, like, we already are, you know, it it, it was that thing that I was talking about earlier as far as, like, fuck you to the rest of these movies, because the Kurgan doesn't fit in the rest of these movies, as far as I know. Like, he, he doesn't... He can't exist in Highlander 2 because of this whole, like, yeah, it was this race of people. They're, you know, like from Russia, and they would, you know, feed children to dogs for for fun and stuff. I was
8: like, oh, okay, yeah. I don't necessarily see them coming from Zeist or anything like that. The the Kurgan also had one of those deleted scenes that was lost in the fire was his mentor who raised him, and he ended up just— killing his own mentor and taking his head for the quickening to show just how fucking evil he really is. <laughs> that, yeah, he'll even kill the man who brought him in, fed him, clothed him, and the the deleted scene supposedly showed that this guy was kind to him, and all the <laughs> Kurgan saw was a mark.
7: Yeah, Victor Kruger, a.k.a. the Kurgan, who comes into New York after we've seen him on the the Scottish Highlands, and then we do get a scene of him, Killing Ramirez, uh, which is fantastic. I love this whole overwrought scene of theirs where the castle's falling apart and there's nothing lightning is and left thunder. But the stairway, <laughs> nothing <laughs> at all. And then even the stairway gets Isn't zapped it? by yep. lightning too. My blades improved your voice. <laughs> Oh man, that fight is fantastic between those two, and just to see Clancy Brown and Sean Connery going at it on screen was fantastic. I mean, Clancy Brown, Clancy Brown looks really young in this one, though not nearly as young as John Polito. I couldn't believe, like, as I'm walk, watching this movie, I'm like, I know John Polito's in here somewhere, mm-hmm. and then I finally saw him, and I was like, that can't be him. No, He's, there's he no way. He doesn't have the mustache. He doesn't have the mustache. His voice sounds pretty normal. He's not
4: talking about getting the high hat.
7: Right. <laughs> what does <laughs> this incompetent supposed to mean? Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, I love that guy. Yeah. He's great. Those are some of the moments that I absolutely love of this. Is That guy, the the, the hot dog vendor, the old uh, guy at the hotel, yeah. and that great guy who's, uh, who's uh, renting rooms out. I love their interactions. Just some of those people. And then like the gun nut who's cruising around New York City <laughs> looking With, for like, a fight. He's
8: just got Uzis sitting on the seat next to him. What did his shirt say? It, it, it was oh. some very Cold War. Like, yeah, it was like, a... hey, Russia.
4: Yeah, it says something like, hey, Russia, but I can't remember what the, what the tagline was. It was something was.
8: about shoving a missile up your ass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it said all lives matter. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I mean, in its own way, yes.
8: In a very 1985 way, (laughs) even though this film is 86, it was clearly made. They make three different references to 1985. You can tell this film sat on the shelf for a while.
7: I have to say that Alan North as the the, (laughs) Lieutenant (laughs) Frank Moran, not Morgan in this one, um, It just cracked me up because he's playing the exact same character he would play in Police Squad. So every time he says something or makes a discovery or whatever, I'm just waiting for the punchline. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I
8: noticed that, too. I'm like, when are they going to freeze frame and it's just all the actors (laughs) standing still?
4: Wait, I was just waiting for him to say, I don't know, man. If we can't figure this out, Drebin's going to be on the case.
0: (laughs) Have you uh, seen or heard from Eddie since he's been released? You might try to club Flamingo hangs out there with some chorus girl a floozy named mimi DuJour.
2: du jour du she french
0: that's just her stage name her real name is mimi coffee
7: coffee no thank you that's the part of the movie that i seem to have kind of forgotten over the years is just the whole investigation thing because it really amounts to
4: absolutely nothing even in the scripts, they would spend all this time with those characters, and then they never got anywhere. It almost seemed like in those those other drafts that the only reason that one detective was there was so that Rachel wouldn't be alone at the end. But yeah, they don't get anywhere. And it also felt like in the other drafts, there was a lot more about the news of the headhunter and, and, and people being nervous about that. And in the movie, I didn't really feel that, that anybody was really talking about it at all.
7: Well, there was one shot of a newspaper, but yeah, I mean, it was not like – it probably should have been like son of sam levels of paranoia going on you know guy going around and, and you hear you know the the news reporter and all this kind of stuff but yeah it's it, you don't get that feeling of paranoia and i guess that would kind of explain the guy with the uzis in mm-hmm. his car yeah. is that he's out there <laughs> hunt, hunting the hunter but yeah that it really
8: just does not come through it does in a, a little bit like remember I'm in disguise <laughs> right? because by, by that point his his face or the sketch of it had made the newspapers. They right. do have a shot of that. So there is not, maybe not the paranoia, but the Kurgan up to that point, he was pretty blatant. He wasn't hiding the fact that he was a scumbag and had a sword and all this. After that, his disguise had left a lot to be desired, but he at least was keeping for him a low profile. Love all the safety
7: pins
4: through the scar on his neck. Yeah, I, I think the church scene may be my favorite part of the whole movie.
8: Which also had some major cuts to the, the to the American version. <laughs> the, the scene where he licks the priest's yeah. hand, some of the dialogue where he's harassing the nuns, and the, where he talks about um, uh, raping Ramirez's woman and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Some of those edits were not in the American cut.
4: Yeah, that's I don't. That's the thing. that's like I've watched this other version so many times. I don't remember those not being there. Yeah, and then it does have one of my favorite um, Def Leppard quotes <laughs> going on <out> there.
8: <laughs> Better to burn out than fade away.
4: Whenever I say something, I have something to say. My wife always expects that to be my
7: next line. <laughs> yeah, and that's the mo- Those are the moments where the Kurgan just owns this movie.
4: You know. Oh yeah. Well, I think that that going back to Clancy Brown like he brought so much more to this character than was on the page in in my opinion. Like it's, he, he got better with each draft, but I mean, he's, he is this guy.
8: Well, and it might've helped a little bit that his scenes were shot more or less in order. Like all of the flashback scenes in Scotland He were the first things he shot. So he got to play that version of the character and then got to play the New York version of the character instead of like Christopher Lambert, who kept having to go back and forth and like, okay, this is Connor 500 years ago. This is Connor. Now he got to go more or less chronologically, which was probably easier as an actor. Do we want to talk a little bit
7: about Ramirez? I mean, I do like this whole idea of the mentorship and their relationship and everything. And Sean Connery, I mean, it could have been considered stunt casting to have this older actor in here and everything. And, of course, you know, his name is going to be huge on the poster because Lambert and, and of uh, uh, Clancy Brown, at this point, nobody knew who the hell these guys were. I mean, you would have had to have been a, a big fan of French cinema. Yeah. Yeah, you know, or Tarzan, but even then, that was only a couple of years beforehand, I think. Right, and I seem to remember that one getting pretty trashed by critics, yeah. if memory serves. So having Sean Connery was such an advantage to them. Yeah, he was only on set for somebody said two weeks. I heard a week. I can't on the remember. the commentary, said. they said ten days. Okay, all right, we'll split the difference. Um, is it working days or is that <laughs> is the weekend in there? I'm they didn't sorry. go in. There. <laughs> <laughs> but. God, I mean, he is fantastic in this small little role. He just – when he's on screen and he just casts this long shadow over the rest of the movie.
8: Absolutely terrific. Well, because you really get the, the feeling that not, – not just that he gave McLeod meaning in the past, but the way McLeod keeps hearing flashbacks, you get the audio flashbacks later on, that – Ramirez really shaped who he is as a person. He's his sort of moral compass. Whenever he, like you said in the earlier drafts, whenever he might have been going dark, he'd think of Ramirez and remember the path he's supposed to be on. Yeah, he's definitely his Obi-Wan Kenobi. I was just happy he didn't come back as a spirit in this movie, in this movie at least. Yeah, that's right. He comes back. <laughs> all you have to do is wish
4: I'd yeah, you Just All you have to know is just, just call my name.
8: <laughs> if you can summon all your will of life into one moment. Oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Jesus Christ.
7: <laughs> all right. With that, let's go ahead and take a break here and uh, play back a pair of interviews. The first is with screenwriter Gregory Wyden, and the second is with director Russell Mulcahy, Won't talk about Highlander two very much, but I did ask him a couple questions about it. So we'll be back with those right after these messages.
4: Badasses, boobs, and body counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts: Mike. It's a quick.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Come again.
4: Not racist at all. Mark,
7: if you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn
2: grooming. Listener favorite, Iris.
0: I'd not have sex with (laughs) that (laughs) horse.
4: will make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB&BC Podcasts via Lipson, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at BadassesBoobsAndBodyCounts.com.
0: It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode... That's p a t r e o n dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's twelve dollars a year. At least fifty great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
3: This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resent
2: at proudlyresents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it.
3: Enjoy the rest of the show. You lucky son of a gun. Kylander was one of your earliest screenplays. Can you kind of tell me how you decided to get into the business?
2: Well, I wrote it as a student at UCLA, so I was twenty when I wrote it. It was a class project. When I was 18 or something like that, I went to, to London, and um, they had the world's largest collection of robbery there in the Tower of London. And I was walking through it, and I thought, oh, what if you owned all this? And I thought, well, what if you actually wore all this? Well, wow, what if you never died, and you're giving someone a tour, and saying, I wore this here, I wore there? And that's kind of what it came out of. It was that, plus the duelists, really, I think, that kind of made you know the idea of uh, somebody that wants to finish a, a beef with you, um, for eternity. <laughs> so at least that was the original, you know, the original thought of it.
3: I haven't seen The Duelist in so many years, but now I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it.
2: Oh, you have to rewatch it. It's it's, a, it's it was a seminal movie for me. You know, it's funny how uh, certain movies from guys that went through film school and I did had an impact. That one had impact. I mean, it had impact on anybody else, but it's funny. I was sitting around talking with some friends the other day. Um, I was talking with Shane Black and some other people, old people I knew back in film school, and um, we were all talking about. Everyone wrote their version of An American Werewolf in London. It's funny because no one talks about that movie. It's not really remembered. It doesn't really have any prominence, but I think every single person I knew who went to film school wrote a version of that. I, to me, it always stood out because they're the obvious. You know, we're, we're enormous at the time. It influenced everybody, you know, like the BT, you know, stuff like that. But, um, but if for some reason, that one little movie. It just touched something in people uh, because it was really the first time anyone had done rotting Bodies. It was a joke, you know, comedic. And that I don't know, for whatever reason, I just everybody wrote one. Shane wrote, wrote, wrote a script called uh, Shadow Company, yeah, I, think. I think. And uh, yeah, that came from that. That came from American World from London. Are you friends with Fred Decker? Yeah, I am. I was roommates with him in uh, film school for a year.
3: I just talked with him. We just did a Night of the Creeps episode.
2: Oh, yeah? Oh, it's terrific.
3: What a nice guy. So nice.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Very much so.
3: Yeah. So this was the first screenplay you wrote? Was this this was part of your class project you were saying?
2: Yeah, yeah. I got an
3: A. Oh, that's good. Nobody would ever give me an A for the first script I wrote. I mean, usually they're just absolutely terrible, but yours does not read like a first first time screenwriter.
2: I'm probably not being completely honest. I think I did three quarters of a script on my own before I got to film school and I never finished, but that uh, but this is really the first one I finished, yeah. Definitely.
3: Do you remember who your professor was?
2: Yeah, Richard Walter. He went on to have a pretty big. Uh, well, not uh, I think he stayed at UCLA, but he uh, uh, had a pretty big uh, side business of uh, screenwriting instruction and seminars. And I spoke at one of them, at least one of them.
3: So he kind of knew what he was talking about.
2: Yeah, I think he was a. a I, what I liked about Richard was he was um, uh, he was enthusiastic. There were there were at least in that era there were people on Film school teaching in film school who didn't really want to be there <laughs> you know they wore their uh, what was you know kind of on their shoulder and um either they thought commercial filmmaking was you know was was a sellout out or they thought that or they had their own frustrations of their own careers or whatever, and Richard seemed to actually had enthusiasm i mean I think that his enthusiasm for Highlander had a lot to do with me deciding to go out and doing something with it i mean. I'm not going to say it's the equivalent of, you know, Tabitha King throwing Carrie in the trash can, uh, rescuing it out of the trash can. King threw it in there, but, but you know, if he'd said it sucked, I might have thrown it in a trash can. I don't know. I had no sense of myself. Sir. So I think it mattered to me that he reacted so enthusiastically. Well, the other thing that misses a lot, like, I'm involved in this organization called Equinox, which is a European-based organization where um, they bring uh, screenwriters together with, um, well, it's screenwriters on both sides, but, but the European side of it tends to be more emerging screenwriters, new screenwriters, and they bring more um, seasoned screenwriters, a lot of them from the United States, over and you sit in a castle and drink wine and talk screenwriting and read their stuff for a week. It's a really great thing. It's a blast. But one of the things that's really great about it, I realize, is that the, the outside of Equinox, I've never experienced it outside of film school, which is the idea of someone who. Is a neutral observer, you know, who doesn't have a dog in the fight that isn't your friend and isn't wanting to be in business with you, is just reading the material and giving you notes, just hey, this is what I think, take it or leave it. And that you realize that that's a fairly rare thing and it's a really great thing if you could find that. It's one of the most valuable things, really in film schools you could find that in a professor that's, you know, assuming that he's not doing his own psychosis or whatever, but but um but but theoretically someone that doesn't have an agenda, yeah, you know, their only agenda is give you their opinion. You know, they don't know you, they're not friends with you, they're not gonna work with you. You know, they're just giving it up Because you realize it's really hard. You go out in the world and you're trying to find on well, I guess what's what I'm looking for pure, you know, opinion that's not colored by relationship or with by business, you know, and uh um, and you realize that's really hard. And then, and on top of it, hopefully someone knows what they're talking about. You know, that's hard. You know, and it's funny. I was just doing the equinox thing. I realized, wow, this is really a rare, rare thing. And you know, good for these people. I, I wish I could be on the other end of it. <laughs> so, so.
3: No, they, they, it's always good to have somebody that can
2: call bullshit on you. Yeah, or just you know, yeah, who just it's it's just an unfettered opinion. It's just it's it's a rare thing, really. If if you're lucky to get that, I think it's one of the uh, the positive things about film school. That, and uh, I would say, uh, well, the the forum that makes you write—you know, because obviously, you know, to be the writer, you got to write. So, a a situation where you have to write, and then also, I think probably the relationships you make there will often stay with you your whole career. Because think about going to film school in LA—is nobody moves, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, at least not initially, you know, because the business is here. So. Um, friends you made in, in film school, your friends were 20 years later. Uh, you still know, you know, and uh, that can be a great resource as some of them become CD executives, some of them become agents, some become other writers, you know. I mean, um, you look at Fred, you know, Fred did uh, that television pilot for Amazon and he, he's doing Predator and, you know, his best through his relationship with Shane and he knows from film school.
3: Well, can you tell me kind of the story of once it got picked up and what ended up happening with it? Well, I got an agent, and my
2: agent sent it to a production company, and they eventually set it up with a finance company.
3: What was kind of the history once it got picked up? Were you invited back to do rewrites to it? Because I know that it ended up going to Larry Ferguson and another writer, too.
2: Yes, there were some changes made, yeah. But I went back and forth with it, but there were some changes made, yeah. Well,
3: I read what I think is one of the early drafts of it, and, I mean, so much of the heart of the story is there, and especially oh, that yeah. that relationship between Conor McLeod and, and Brenna, who's Brenna at that point, and, I mean, so much of it stays the same, even to the finished film. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that always... Uh, always drives people crazy is the continuity of the films. Well, first off, I want to ask, were you asked to come back for Highlander 2, or was it just way past
2: after that came out? I forget. Um, I think the money they were offering wasn't worth it, because I got paid a certain amount, whether I did it or not. They didn't really make it worth the trouble. Um, And then I was also pretty busy at the time. I believe I could have, uh, as I remember it, but I didn't do it. At the time, I just didn't. I just didn't want to, you know. Um, so I didn't do it. So I, I had nothing to do with any of the sequels, and I got paid for them. But I did. Um, I never. In fact, I've never seen any of them to this day. So.
3: That was going to be my next question, as far as if they drove you crazy or not.
2: Uh, well, I know they drove fans crazy. So, but um, no, I never, I never. I never saw them. Uh,
3: I know that, you know, one of your, your biggest screenplays is Backdraft, and that's kind of based on some of your personal experiences. Were you a firefighter before college or, or after you got into school, or what, what was the timeline with that? During college, wow. Uh, during, during, yeah. That's amazing. You, so you were firefighting and schooling at the same time?
2: I was, I was, yeah. Yeah, I used to be a girl next to me in class, I would just my hair, to see if I've been a firefighter. Was it a good way to pick up girls? I guess. I don't know. I don't remember really. I mean, it was, you know, it's it, it certainly, it's what people remember about you. I mean, I would go into meetings and Holly was like, oh, uh, you know, because it's kind of an unusual job.
3: Is there a character in Backdraft that relates to you very personally, or are you kind of every little piece of those characters?
2: Not so much. Gee, I mean, in the sense that, I mean, I'm not, I didn't have William Baldwin's problems in the movie, but he, he's a spectator to it. And obviously I was that, you know. The young and so I so I guess I'd have to say Billy Baldwin, but that's pretty a complete sentence, really.
3: rather him than uh, uh, Scott Glenn or um, oh okay, god, I'm trying to uh, Donald yeah, Sutherland, I,
2: didn't I Yeah, that's good, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I didn't kill anybody in the fire, it's not intentional. so yeah, it was um, I mean, a lot of it was just experiences I had while I was um, that I witnessed that I saw, you know, um, while I was doing it. I mean, mainly and that's mainly the versatility of it, you know, I don't think. What people really remember about Backdraft, I think, is the um, atmosphere of it and uh, the sense of um, reality of the day-to-day life of what they're doing. I don't think people necessarily really remember the plot. And I think that um, that part of it, that realistic sense of it, definitely came from just bits and pieces that I experienced when I was doing
3: it. Can you tell me, how did you get involved with Space Rangers?
2: Uh, The producers of it uh, produced Backdraft, or I guess that was before... Back so, yeah, uh, they, I knew them um, because I'm trying to remember how I knew them. But, oh, I, I know what it was. Um, I had a TV deal at Tristar. Um, they were doing a pilot for Tristar that needed a rewrite. And Tristar asked me if I would rewrite it, kind of a brief polish on it. And I said yes. And then I got to know them. And then I tried to help them on the set of The Kiss was a movie that Penn did. I was kind of brought in pretty late and so it was really hard for me to make any real changes to it because most um well, it's very common with first time directors that if you come in just moments before production begins and make suggestions even if they're pot- good ones um they're often will panic that it's you know they pull one brick out of the wall the whole wall's going to come down somewhere else and um and so there's a real reluctance to make changes so I probably came in too late to actually affect anything, <laughs> but, but um, that that relationship though was still a positive one, and uh, uh, and I think from that they had that TV series. And they asked me, which was for response?" I just did the one. I wasn't staff on the show or anything. I just wrote one episode, went in and out. I didn't. Um, I, I wasn't like a part of the development of it or anything.
3: And I'm trying to get the timeline straight too, as far as Tales from the Crypt and the Prophecy, because you directed. Both of those was Tales from the Crypt your first directing experience.
2: Yes. What was that like for you? Yeah, it was fun to work on. It was interesting to see. It's like a little. Interesting. It was just interesting experience because it's an anthology. So even though it's a TV show, every time they sit down and make another one, it's like making a little movie because all the sets are different and all the cast is different and everything's different. You know, so it was kind of an interesting way to go about doing a show.
3: And then, can you tell me how the prophecy came along for
2: you? I specifically wrote a movie that I could direct, meaning I wrote a movie that could be done for a price. And so that was the idea. So I did that. And that's 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 why I did it. I mean, you know, the I mean, subject matter is being interesting to me as well, obviously. But I mean, but that why I wrote that movie then um, was for that because a lot of the stuff I was writing was pretty big budgeted. And um, and this was something I figured somebody would love to direct.
3: It's remarkable to know how much The Prophecy costs because it looks. So lush, and just the the i mean from the first shot it looks terrific, and it just goes on from there,
2: yeah, we had a couple of great cinematographers, and I think the choice to shoot it on uh, on i think it was shot on super thirty five i think same as backtrack i think um that really helped, yeah, there was a lot of effort with the lighting and, and locations and stuff, and uh yeah, it had a really good look, neither. Are a little out of data on us, but uh, and yeah, for a three million dollar movie, I mean, we could be up, we're pretty limited in that sense, but but um, I, I, the, the digital effects, the practical effects are pretty good, but yeah, we, we kind of locked out of that one. It must be a good feeling for you to
3: have these characters that you create both with the prophecy and with Highlander kind of have their own lives outside of that. I mean, I'm hoping that that helps parlay into some hopefully some good royalty checks at the end of the day.
2: Oh, yeah, sure. I mean. The Prophecy, like Highlander, I really didn't have anything to do with after that, though it was a friendly relationship. The Highlander, I never really understood where they were going with it after that, so I just kind of disassociated myself from it. I spent a part of my life introducing myself as, um, instead of introducing myself as Gregory Wyden, I it's hello, i Gregory Wyden, I didn't write Highlander, because people were really upset by it. But in the case of Prophecy, I had a friendly relationship with the producers, and, you know, just Miramax wanted to keep chugging them out as directed videos, and I just wasn't interested in actually writing and directing that. But... But I stayed on, and I think I wrote a couple of scenes in the second one. But I was friendly with everybody, and um, you know, stayed on, and I, and I got paid, you know, the sequel payments and the producer payments on the sequels. So, so yeah, uh, yeah, I did, I, I did the it.
3: Have you seen these short films where they're kind of mixing the prophecy with the Hellraiser stuff? No, I haven't. Uh,
2: you mean like on um,
3: YouTube or something? Mm-hmm. No, I haven't. What's it called? There's Hellraiser prophecy and then there's Hellraiser Debtor Winter's Lament and I was like, what the heck are these? And I looked them up and I was like, okay, yeah, it's kind of a, a, a Clive Barker Gregory Wyden um, mashup.
2: The funny story about that when I was the prophecy came out, they sent me to uh, the Fangoria con- uh, convention in New York and uh, to present, you know, like a fan base. Thing where I would get up on stage and talk about the movie, and they show a clip or something like that. And, and Clyde Barker went on before me. Yeah, I can't remember what movie it was. It was, was Mountains of Madness or something about a book, something about a evil book. I can't remember. Anyway, I was going on after him, and he went on. He went on before me, and he was just amazing. I mean, he strided up and down the stage, and you know announced you will live forever you know and stuff and the audience is just swaying <laughs> it's like a rock concert you know they love to death and, and I'm like oh god I gotta follow this guy and so he goes off and then I go up on the stage and I'm
6: kind of like oh I have this one movie and uh, you
2: know I'm and I felt really like you know just a huge disappointment I come back off the stage and I'm and I'm talking to the MGM people who had the Clyde Barker movie, and um, I'm like, oh, man, that guy was amazing. I just feel like until they got blown off. They all go, yeah, but we wish we had your movie. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of funny.
3: That must have made you feel a little good, a little better okay. at least. So I know you haven't seen the Highlander sequels, but it's almost like Every one of them is trying to undo the things that you did, like basically explain all the stuff that isn't
2: explained in your movie. Yeah, my relationship with Highlander is weird just because, um, you know, it's an extraordinarily popular film. And, you know, the producers obviously and the director have something to do with that. I mean, I, you can't just cut them out and you can't just say they're responsible for the bad things and it, you know. Um, they took this movie and whatever it was, Lucky Bolt of Lightning or whatever, but it just has remained, you know, phenomenal since. And so, you you have to give them some credit. And so they went off and did what they thought would be a sequel. I, I, I it made no sense to me, you know. I had a friend of mine that actually had a hold of the script before they shot it, and he tried to read it to me, and I kept telling him not to read it to me because I didn't want to know. And finally he looked at me and just d- goes, they're aliens?" <laughs> I went, no, they did what they had to do i they're they're one of the producers who's now dead, thought of himself as a is a, a strong creative force and I, I i think the jury's out whether that was true or not but but because of that, because he thought himself as creative, um he put his stamp on an awful lot of what happened after that, and not all of it was good.
3: You mean you didn't have that planned the whole time that they were all from
2: this other planet and came to Earth? No, to fight? I did To me, it was you know, it's funny. I honestly didn't think of it. I know you're being sarcastic, but I mean, but I honestly didn't think of it as a sequel. You know, I thought that was the end. You know, <laughs> you won. You know, that's the end of it. I mean, if 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 if, if indeed it had become this phenomena, you know, I suppose I could have come up with another version or you know, a continuation of the story, but. I don't know what I would have done, you know, I mean, I was a kid too. I wrote it. So, I mean, I don't know what I would have come up with, but I obviously had a very specific take on the characters. that's somewhat different from from the producer's take. So.
3: Well, I am curious what your relationship with the first movie is like, and were you able to enjoy what they ended up doing with that screenplay, or were you just too close to it?
2: I was too close to it. I missed a lot of what, I mean, I, I appreciated what they had done, but at the same time, I thought there were things that I thought were missing, you know, that mainly the Kurgan he's a much more tortured character in mind. You know, the, the, the movie was sort of one of the source material for Highlander really is the duelist Ridley Scott's first film. And it's about two guys during the um, Napoleonic Wars who keep trying to finish a duel that can't, for whatever reasons, can never get seen to get finished. And they spent 20 years trying to finish this duel with each other and it has a terrific ending. And, um, and I just thought, well, what if somebody did that for 500 years? <laughs> and so that was kind of the, but, but what was great about that movie is the, the, bad, the quote, bad guy, unquote, and it's Harvey Keitel. He's a bad guy and he's single-minded in finishing this duel. But at the same time, he's kind of a tortured creature. You get why he's doing it because he ends up being on the wrong side of the French politics and the Napoleonic era. And he ends up a kind of pathetic character who's, who's only, Reason for living really is to finish this duel. He, and the other character is perfectly happy to go on his life and not finish it. I like that dynamic, and that was I was trying to do with Highlander, where the I mean, was clearly the bad guy and clearly trying to finish an unnecessary duel, but at the same time was kind of a pathetic guy who you sort of understood that this has become, you know, in a in a life where you lose everything over eternity, it, it's the one thing left for him to get up in the morning for. And that largely got stripped out and he kind of became Freddy Krueger. It was also weird, you know, you have to understand how Highlander was. When when it came out, it was largely panned by critics. And it was a bomb at the box office when Fox released. It became this enormous hit in Europe. My theory was always because it was dubbed, so you didn't hear <laughs> Christopher Lambert's accent, but it became this phenomena in Europe, and then it was rediscovered in the United States on video as a um, kind of a cult film. So so when it first came out, at first I kind of thought, like, well, you know, I guess I was right, because <laughs> <laughs> nobody liked this. But then it became this, this other thing.
3: Now, I know that you wrote um, Blood Makes Noise in 2013. Was that your first novel, or had you written stuff before? No, first novel. So what was that like going from screenwriting into novel writing?
2: Oh, natural. I mean, I've uh, people have always liked the prose in mine, so it just seemed natural to kind of extend that. Um, I like writing, you know, so it, to me, it's just another kind of writing. It didn't feel dramatically different. I think being a screenwriter first helps you be a novelist because you learn to show, have, and tell. An awful lot of um, respected novelists, killers, murder, you know, they just say everything rather than show
3: How did uh, Green Sales, the TV movie, how did that one come about
2: for you? Uh, same guy, the, the former head of um, TriStar TV, syndicate Columbia TV. Uh, he called me up. Uh, basically, it was one of these weird things where in Germany, you're not allowed to have product placements in television in Germany. Mm-hmm. But everyone knows that a ship with Green Sales is Beck's because that's the full focus of their European ad campaign. So, somebody said Bex would pay for a two hour television pilot um, about a bunch of guys traveling around on a ship with green sails. Because it's not product placement. It doesn't say Bex on it anywhere, but everyone in Europe watching will say, oh, that's Bex. And so it would be product placement without being product placement. So, I was told to write a, minute, write a, <laughs> write a pilot that uh, had a ship with green sails.
3: That is ingenious. That is great.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and so it eventually aired as a movie in Europe. You know, it didn't, um, it didn't get picked up as a series, but but it eventually became a you know it was a two hour movie, so two hour TV movie, I guess.
3: And what are you working on these days?
2: Uh, I'm doing a a, a feature for um, uh, Lionsgate at the moment, and I'm an executive producer on uh, Lionsgate's also trying to reboot Highlander as a TV series.
3: Is the movie is that uh, Other Life?
2: No, no, that wasn't landscape. That was originally written for Warner Independent and then produced independently by Cherry Road. And that's actually shot. That's book's come out this this year. Or next year. Next year. I wrote, yeah, I wrote that. And then um I did direct it. And then um <clears throat> no, the one for Lionsgate is a um I'm still writing it. I sold it to them as an idea and I'm still writing it. Any um uh, ships with
3: green sails in that one?
2: I know ships with green sails, um,
3: Actually there are sailing ships in it, but <laughs>
2: I love my green sales.
3: Uh, are there any other uh, book projects in your future?
2: Yeah, I'm finishing a novel right now, another one, just on my spare time for the fun of it. I have a pretty good relationship with the guys that published the first one, uh, Thomas and Mercer. And, um, and so I'm, gonna, I'm doing another one, You know, not the same subject matter, but uh, I am uh, uh, looking at another one, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, should be fun, hopefully. <laughs>
3: yeah you know, one of the things that I always say when I'm talking with screenwriters is that it's so tough because you know if you look at your c v it looks like you've done you've written five things in your entire career, but obviously that right. isn't the case what What are some of your funnest projects that you've worked on over the years?
2: Well, satisfying to be if they got made so um, <laughs>
3: uh,
2: you talk about the ones that didn't get made or the ones that got made
3: uh, yeah I can't imagine
2: satisfying ones that didn't get made right all oh, the ones that got made oh well, I mean it depends what you mean I mean the prophecy. I feel I own the most because I wrote and directed it. So, you know, it's obviously more a complete statement, you know, cause I, mm-hmm. I handled both jobs and that, but the actual experience making everybody was great on it. I mean, I had the, you know, Christopher Walken, those guys are all fantastic, but, but it was a low budget movie. It was my first directing thing. I was out of my, you know, I was just exhausted all the time. I think my father came and knocked on the hotel room door once. So I was getting ready to go in the morning and, I don't even remember this, but supposedly I looked at him and said, "You know, I have no idea what I'm doing." <laughs> like I was just, you know, still in the clothes I slept in the night before. So, Backdraft was probably the movie I had the most fun on because it was my story. was my You know, there wasn't anything about everybody changing the story or anything. You know, it was it was it was it was traveling through production pretty much the way I wanted it to be. I was the only writer on it. I love the environment. I love Chicago and you know, it was a giant movie and um, it's fun to be on the set of a giant movie in the city. It's also fun to be on the set of a giant movie in the city when you're the writer, because they want you around, at least wanted you around for rehearsals and changes and all three used to be a fireman. So sort of the, you know, verisimilitude of the job, but yet you're not working 12 hours a day and exhausted. And, you know, so you get to hang out and have a drink and enjoy all the, you know, perks of, um, being part of a famous movie in town, but you're not out of your mind, you know, like everybody else. So that was actually, so I had the most fun on that. (laughs) But but as an artistic statement, I would have to say that uh, the prophecy, I mean, I've worked on other movies where I didn't get credit. I worked on a really bad movie uh, called uh, blast that was um, with Eddie Griffin. That was shot in South Africa where I rewrote it on set. But a lot of that, kind of got cut out but but it was in south africa and it was really fun it was in cape town Mm -hmm. you know again it was a really fun it was a very satisfying experience creatively but um, uh my name's not on it but it was uh um, but it was a great time being there.
3: The cast of The Prophecy all the way down the line is just amazing. Even when you have these small roles uh, being played by Amanda Plummer and Adam Goldberg. I mean, come on, these are...
2: Well, Adam Goldberg wasn't Adam Goldberg yet. <laughs> was the, I, I just knew him, you know. Or the casting director, who, uh, Don Phillips, who had, uh, he gave Sean Penn his first job. He gave Matthew McConaughey his first job. He Parker Posey his first job. Her first job gave... Um, uh, Adam Goldberg his first job, Vigo his first job. So he had a he he could call all these people, you know. Vigo was a last minute uh, stand-in. Sean Penn was supposed to do it, but then he was directing the movie and it ran late and he couldn't do it. and so uh and so Vigo stepped in one day's notice and did eight pages of dialogue. And uh but yeah Adam wasn't Adam yet. Uh Vigo wasn't really Vigo because this is before Lord of the Rings movies just before. So he's still the guy that he truly really just done Indian Runner at that point. Walker was the one that we kind of hung the movie on, I mean, he's the one that got the movie made. And Eric Stoltz was great. Eric Stoltz was really, really great. He was just very relaxed. Um, I mean, give you an idea what a great guy he was. He showed up on set one day, and no one had told him he would be lit on fire that day. And he was like, "Okay, whatever." I mean, it wasn't. He, we were just burning uh, his leg. But we had fire on his legs, uh, and he had not been told that was about what happened to what happen to set,
3: and he was fine with it. He's so, he's so good in wasn't really. Well, and I love Elias. Is it Coteus or Codius? Uh Coteus. Coteus. I love him. Whenever he shows up in something, so when he ends up being the main character of the film, I'm just like, yes, I'm so happy to see him because he's just—he's he, kind of underrated.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. He's a very brooding kind of guy. Yeah, I think that's sometimes hard for people to cast. But yeah.
3: Yeah. No, he played that the Thomas Daggett role. Pitch yeah, perfect. He good.
2: Yeah, he was good. Where did you end up shooting that one? Third of it was shot in L.A. A uh, third of it was shot in. Um, well, actually, no. Most of it. Well, third of it was shot in Superior, Arizona, which is a small town about an hour outside of Phoenix, and then the rest of it was shot on a national on our Indian reservation in Arizona. So, um, so yeah, so that was, that was the, um, yeah, pretty much, that was pretty much the breakdown of it. I like what you're doing
3: there as far as battle of really Christian figures play out and, uh, against a culture where Christianity really doesn't matter nearly as much as it does to
2: the other characters. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure how that was going to go, but we never really found any flack for it. And even, we got a lot of positive stuff from, um, Preservation folks who were like, you know, come back, do another one here. We like the way we were portrayed. You know,
3: so that was nice. No, that was very nice. It was very respectful. It didn't feel like, you know, like, oh, right. hey, you know, there's got to be the alcoholic character and the wife abuser yeah. character. I mean, just, you know, like just a few years, I think earlier was Thunderheart, right? So it was just like, oh, geez, yeah. you know, crime on the res kind of thing. But
2: here, right. everybody seemed right. to be treated with respect. Yeah. Yeah, so they they did like that. That was good. You know. And they were nice. We use real people, you know, real people from the community and stuff.
3: Yeah, some great, great faces. Some of those uh the elders just man. Well thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been a real pleasure talking with you.
2: Yeah, yeah. So uh however this ends up, feel free to send me a version of it.
3: I'm really usually very good at accents, and from what I can tell, it sounds like you were born in Boston, Massachusetts. Is that right?
5: Really? I mean, yeah, that's about oh my god, that's about 18 hours flying, flying fly more time than where I was born. I was born in Mel- Melbourne, Australia. Grew up in um, Wollongong and then Sydney, Australia. But '79, I went to England and uh, started doing music videos. And then I went back to Australia in '83 to do Razorback, and then back to England, I think, to do more videos and do Highlander, um, and then back to America to do videos and whatever. So I, I, I've been living, and I lived like six years in England, and six years uh, in the 2000s, I lived six years back in Sydney. And I've lived here in America for a lot of years. So I've got, I guess I've got a mixed
3: accent. I imagine that you were into filmmaking before you made the move to England. Oh, yeah.
5: Well, I was doing um, short films, some short films which won some awards. I did some first music videos in Australia because no, no, no one was doing them. And I was a film editor at a TV station. When I left school. I, I I wanted to make films since I was like, Twelve years old when I saw 7th Voyage of Sinbad* and certain films, and I managed to buy—my um, well, mum bought me a little ten-dollar second-hand 8 mm camera. Started making little short films. Then I graduated up to Super Six, Super Eight, and then 16 mm and eventually went up from there. But yeah,
3: I—I I, I mean, I was—I was, I was making uh, my own little films at fourteen. Who were you making uh, music videos for back in Australia? Band, well, actually I
5: shot videos for ACDC. There's someone you do know. Um, But there are other bands, Hush and an artist called Marsha Hines. Um, People you wouldn't know probably. But ACDC is one of the bands you know. And that was with the original Bono. Um, Not Bono. um, Bon Scott. Bon Scott, thank you.
3: When you were shooting these music videos, what was the market like? Because this was pre-MTV, correct? Oh, yeah. And they were done, they were done specifically
5: for, I don't know, many of them made them international. Um, they were mainly made for you know, television, Australian record sales and whatever. Um, because they had a show down there called Countdown, which is a bit like English, the English top of the pops. So, yeah, I was, I was making videos for, for companies down in Australia, for basically for Australian use.
3: Tell me about the move to England. Did you have a job lined up when you moved over there? or? Well, I mean, yeah, the move, the move to England was very strange. It was like something I, I was working for,
5: uh, working with, doing videos. Um, they said they had this punk band over in Birmingham uh, called... Um, something in the grave diggers, grave I forget their name. And they said, can you go up and shoot a video? So I, I actually packed my bags for like two weeks, a two-week stay, and kept my apartment, and basically still kept the milk in the fridge, and went over to England. and never been to England before, never been overseas before, and uh, had no plans whatsoever, like sort of like got off a train, looked, got on a tube at Heathrow, and looked at the thing, went to all these names of city towns, and I remember a town called Earl's Court from seeing a movie called Barry McKenzie. So I just got off the tube and got up there and learned about B&Bs because they didn't have it in Australia, bed, bed and breakfast. And then went up to Birmingham, saw snow for the first time in my life. Did this video and then someone saw the video and they said, can you do another video? And then someone flew me to America and I did another video. And then I basically... Did Video Kill Radio Star and big Data's eyes. Uh, I sort of got stuck in this whirlwind back and forth from America to England. I was flying every second week, and I didn't come back, go back to Australia till um, basically back. two weeks stay. I had to sort of buy some more clothes.
3: When you're shooting these videos, obviously they're they're called music videos, but you're not shooting on video. Are you shooting 16, 35?
5: We were shooting 16 mil. Some people were shooting on video. Um, I didn't like the look of video. Then I also didn't like the shape of the television screen, 4x3. Later on, I started what I, what I call cropping the video, putting black bars top and bottom to make them look more sort of um, 185, you know, more like a, a film. And I remember the first time I did it, and we sent it over to MTV in New York, and we got this call back saying, Uh, The technical hitch with the video is that there's these strange bars at the top and bottom of the screen, but don't worry, we're we're blowing the video up to get rid of the bars. I said, no, 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 they're intentional, because actually, you know, I was was basically a frustrated feature director or whatever, and uh, so I was trying to make the video look as cinematic as possible. It also occurred to me that I had in the black bars, top and bottom of the screen, because most people watched the TV with very bright lights on in their living room, the black bars actually brought the color of the image or the image out and made it crisper um, by giving the giving the eye that black definition.
3: How did you get the uh, Derek and Clive Get the Horn gig? I was doing a few videos for Richard Branson
5: in the early days. Richard and I would I'd go hang out on these, on these little boaties, sort of in a little boat and Venice, uh, the canals around Nottingham and or Nottingham Gate and somewhere around there. I was doing videos with him, and then all of a sudden he said he wanted to do this video for them or this film of them basically. And basically it was like a, a two-night shoot, I think, with three cameras and it got on film. So whenever one camera ran out. That would be quietly reloaded because they would. You know, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore were just ranting on recording the album as we filmed it, and so then sometimes there'd only be two cameras filming, and then that film would get you know, another camera would roll out and whatever. So yeah, it was um, it was a great two night filming thing. They were, they were fabulous.
3: I wanted to ask you, speaking of uh, the Buggles, how does it feel to be? And I know you had already. You had your videos shown in England, in Australia, but when it came to music video, really coming to the fore in America with MTV, how does it feel to be the guy who helped put the first music video on in the United States?
5: It was strange because it was like when we shot the video, it was one one, it was a really you know, cool song. The guys, Trevor Horn and the other guy, they were great. I had an Australian friend, the girl. I said, Do you want to be in this video? You're going to be putting a wire and we're going to load you in a tube. She never forgave me after that because it hurt like hell because she was up and down that tube for about three hours. She had a few rashes. But when we were filming it and we filmed it in one day, it was like we didn't really know what we, we were, what it was, the effect was going to be. It was just like we we're doing this video just as, and uh, having fun doing it throwing in strange ideas and then it sort of became it did what it did. It was it was the the, the right the, the right video at the right time. The launch of MTV, Video Kill the Radio Star was the perfect song to launch a Station.
3: I think I knew your work with Duran Duran the most before you really got into into feature making.
5: Well actually it was it was Duran Duran that got me Razorback, actually. Um, not 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 the band itself. But the, the video I did, um, of, uh, Hungry Like a Wolf, which we shot, we shot a couple of videos out there in Sri Lanka. We did Save a Prayer, uh, Hungry Like a Wolf, and some other video. And we just toured, toured the island, and as we get to a spot, we're doing a little bit of Save a Prayer, and a little bit of Hungry Like a Wolf, and whatever, as we tra- tra- traveled around the island. But the Jews, I knew Hal McElroy, I'd met when he was shooting the last wave and we became friends, um, he saw that video and said, um, I'm in the phone call, I was in London. And he rang up and said, uh, Hungry Rousey, I just saw, saw Hungry Wolves.' you know, and I'd cropped it like a feature film. He said, I saw the video, we really loved it. Would you like to, would you like to come to Australia and do a feature film? And I said, absolutely, yes, yes, yes. I think my third question was, what's it about? He said,
3: that's about a killer pig, a uh, giant killer pig. I went, great, off I went. What was it like returning to your homeland and making your first feature?
5: It was fabulous. I was blessed with having Dean Semler, the cinematographer. I brought my production designer back to England, who was Australian, but had done a lot of my videos. and He actually did video Kilderita stuff. I brought my production designer back to Australia to do it. But Dean was great, How was great. And it struck me when I was filming Razorback, because like, I hadn't been back to Australia for such a long time. that I was nearly looking at Australia through foreigner eyes again. Or fresh different eyes. It was, it was a very good experience. And, you know, I got to shoot on, um, anamorphic, Panavision anamorphic gold. It was just like, it was a dream come true.
3: So you weren't cheating the black bars that time? No. And, and the weird, the weird thing is, is I think two weeks before
5: we were shooting, Hal said um he wanted to shop one eight five and it was all these desert landscapes and it was perfect for anamorphic, you know, big wide screen, two three, three. He said, I want to shop and one of us wanna shop one eight five and we got really depressed. We went outside really me and Dean going, Damn, this is a fuck up and uh then Hal came down he said, you know, I was going to Warner Brothers, and you know, they wanted 185, they, they, wanted, they wanted just like Mad Max Road Warrior. And Dean had shot Mad Max Road Warrior, and he said, uh, that was shot anamorphic. And he went, ah! And he ran back upstairs and called Warner Brothers and said, that was shot anamorphic. And they went, okay, shoot anamorphic then. <laughs> it, was a, it, was, it was such a close call that if that hadn't happened, Razorback would have been shot, you know, in 185. And it's, but it's very hard. I mean, it took me a while just recently. Someone wanted to see a copy of it and all copies I see on Netflix and whatever are all blown up and pan and scanned. It's very hard to find a widescreen version of it. And I eventually found two on Amazon through some buyers or whatever so I or whatever. They had two copies left and, um, it's some collected edition widescreen. And yeah, so it's very it's quite hard to
3: get. It's funny when I think about Australian film at that time. You know, there there are a lot of great movies out there, and there seem to also be a lot of great killer animal films out there. Like I remember, there was the one with the alligator that was killing everyone. Well, was there something in the air as far as like killer animals, or was it just kind of like a? Um... I think
5: I think the alligator was up razor back there. There was maybe a rat film. Was it a rap film? Was it, was it been an Australian film? I don't think so. Okay. I think that could have been their first creature feature.
3: Even the cropped version of it, I have to say, looks gorgeous. Yeah, except
5: uh, if, you, if, it, if it's been well pan and scanned, when it first came out, they didn't even bother pan and scanning so it. I was, I was being a smartass when I was shooting it. I was going, anamorphic, this is fantastic. I'll put everyone on a left of frame or a right of frame and no one's in the center ever and whatever. And so there's, there's scenes of like Gregory Harrison crossing the, the desert or the salt plains and he enters frame in the anamorphic version, um, and walks across the desert. But in the un version, you cut to this white desert and no one comes into shot. And you go like, what was that shot about? or you'll see someone's nose and they'll be talking, but, you know, yeah. anyway.
3: I know that you had had a, a fair deal of acting in the music videos, but they weren't necessarily, you know, narrative and, you know, a lot of dialogue and all that. Was it kind of a little bit of a shock for you to go from primarily music videos to shooting a narrative film? Well, yes and no. I mean, I mean, I actually did, did some acting on stage
5: um, um, prior to that. So I'd worked with actors before as an actor. I guess in a lot of my videos I was also telling stories as much as I could with the camera and the artist sometimes in as a narrative and as a drama. But I, I had I had I had a great cast. Gregory Harrison was great, I had Bill Kerr, who's you know, you know, part of deceased, but um I mean, I'm I'm a real seasoned actor. And, uh, yeah, so I was, I was surrounded with some really talented of Australian actors and American Gregory Harrison, who coincidentally was born on Catalina Island, which at the point when he was growing up had Razorbacks on them. <laughs> but, um, I, yeah, I, I, I think maybe on day one, I learned my first lesson with the acting. I, I think it was Bill Kerr and David Argue. And David Argue was was also good good on stage during stand-up and sort of spontaneous uh, ad-lib dialogue. And Bill Kerr was much more of a sort of a trodden the boards theatrically trained, solid actor, yeah, from the script. I I think one of the first things we shot, we had Bill Kerr and David Argue, and David argued we'd go off script a little, and Bill Kerr was standing there going, when when do I come in? <laughs> like, he, he's gone off script, not normally the actor knows when he's coming in because he knows the lines, yeah? So I, I, I had a chat with them both, and we found we a, a good medium that David would at least finish his dialogue with the scripted line. So, so Bill would know when to come in. There's no stopping David, argue. He's, one, yeah, one a wonderful talent, but, uh, yeah, a totally different style. You know, one one is a very improvised style, and one is a very traditional style. And both, they're both exciting and good, and great. Um, but when you put them together, each has to know each other's style. So yeah, there was, a, yeah, there was a, yes, there was a, there was a, a a learning curve in the
3: filming of it. Yeah. Now, how do you go from Razorback to Highlander? It wasn't
5: a direct response because um, Razorback didn't really sort of like get any any um, status or whatever until it hit. And a friend of mine actually saw it. It, was a, it didn't do well in America. It lasted three days or whatever. Um, but a friend of mine saw it, and he bought it off Warner Brothers. And to it to France and whatever. And I remember going to Paris and we had this huge premiere with Queen Cain and you had the whole sort of streets of Paris with this gigantic sort of cutouts of Lambert and Connery and lining the streets and it was this huge event. I didn't really stem from that. I think my involvement, I was doing a game with Duran. I uh, was doing things like the Wild Boys and whatever. And, um, I think around about that time again, these producers, Bill, Bill Pans, Bill, Bill Pans and Peter Davis called me up and they had this film which was going to be financed by EMI, which was Duran's label. And they rang me up and said, um, they sent me a script, read it, and had this meeting with them. And, uh, you know, it was a really sort of spontaneously good meeting. You know we both had we had the same vision. You know, it was just a great adventure genre story, but with an incredible sense of romance, of and tragic romance through the ages, which I think drove the story. It was one of those films again where I was given a lot of freedom in what to do and, and what you know what and and again working with very talented people. You know, I had. Uh, Alan Cameron as a designer. I um, I had, um, what what's his name? The question um, is, did the last emperor. Um, and, uh, anyway, I had really excellent people. Um And, and the only funny story about, well um, there's a number of funny stories, but I remember I was working with Jerry Fisher, uh, the, the DP, who'd done a lot of really fantastic films, very Traditional looking in a way. I mean, that first day, he was writing a scene and also there was all these bounce cards and like, you know, bounce boards and no shadows and da blah, da blah, 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 And my camera, I said, I'm going My camera's getting really cramped in here. So we went into the car park, um, to do that scene. And I said, you know what? Just get rid of all this shit and just like use the overhead lights and flash, just flash the lights on and off. And uh, he said, oh, God, this is all that crap. And uh, we, we, we filled it, and then he saw the rushes, and he went, oh, that's sort of works, is not it? And so then he, he then just jumped on board, and he was like,
3: The scope of the movie seems so huge, especially bouncing back and forth from one timeline to another to another. It feels like it must have taken so long to shoot, but I imagine that's probably not the case.
5: <laughs> no, it's not the case. We shot fast. It's amazing when you think that, like, let's say the Silver Cup sign, the front side of it was shot in London, and it's actually two-thirds of scale of the real sign, which we shot in New York when he climbs up and you see it from behind. You see New York in the background. And that was shot months later. But the front sign is like, it's nearly half the size. But you don't really sort of... Get that sense in the film somehow. We, we sort of managed to pull off the scale and that was the, the genius of the designer. And a lot of it was like, you know, it was before CG or anything. So a lot of it had to be done like the collapse in the sign. I remember the, he was brilliant enough to build half the sign and half the whole rigging in basically plastic. So when the sign collapses, the structure, half the structure, so the there were like eight guys up top with scissors basically, and they just cut, cut the string, and the sign collapsed as the neon letters hit, were about to hit the water, by that stage the, the roof was flooded. As they were about to hit the water, about one foot from the water, they actually were designed to unplug themselves, so the guys, the sun guys fighting the water wouldn't be electrocuted. But if you watch closely, you'll see there's one, I think it's the, one letter, maybe it's, I don't know which letter it is, but one letter, it nearly hits one of the And fun guys. It, that was definitely made of real tin, real metal. But there was, that was a one-take, one-take wonder. We had one take of that. We had, I think we had 14 cameras. It was all was data set up. And it was a Friday, Friday afternoon, I remember, it, and it was like, Okay, here we go. Everyone ready? On the count of three and whatever. And, um, and all just went bla, 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 splash, watching and it was like, uh, I think we got it and there was no playback. And then we saw the rushes and we were all, it was all good. But yeah, it was one of those moments where it was like, I guess it was like blowing up the bridge in the river quiet, you know, like, this is a one take wonder, even, you we know, go. Cross your fingers.
3: One of the things that I love the most is the use of the match cuts between old and new, the way that we go from you know the transitions.
5: Some of those were designed I'd say two thirds of those were designed beforehand, like cleaning up a meme from the garage up to into Scotland that was pre designed. Whereas the other one that wasn't was when it goes from his face in Scotland and dissolves through the Mona Lisa's face painted on the side of a building, we pan off and he's walking down the streets of New York modern day. So what we did is we, when we were in New York, which was after we shot all the London and Scottish pieces, um, cause the majority of the New York stuff was shot in London, but we did do a week in New York City. And we had, we were down in the Soho area and we we're filming... Um, we're just looking around near his location where the antique shop was. And there was this Steppenwolf, I think it was. I think it was a record cover, but it was just this green Mo- face of Mona Lisa, but so green. I saw that. I went, Oh, let's just shoot that and then we'll pan off that. And then we went back to, when we went back to England, we just did an extra closer sort of Chris against the rock to line up with that face. and. Um, yeah, so some, most of them were pre-designed, like the tilt up the fish tanks, the tilt up the, the lake when they're rowing. And some of them were then, you, you saw something, you did it, and then you came back and did a pickup to match that transition. So I think, I think it was that, it was important to me to, to have that sort of fluid visual quality about it. Are you a storyboarder or? Yeah, I do my own storyboards. Storyboard artists are fantastic and there's some brilliant ones out there and like if I do like a commercial or whatever I'll probably use it because there's more money in there. Normally on features so and it's it's a lot quicker if I if I do them. They're not they're not the best storyboards and maybe I I'm am i am the only one that can really understand them. It also helps me by doing them myself, it helps me sort of try out ideas on paper. I can go I'm doing this or sort of and then I look at the whole thing. I go, you know what? This is a bit low, or whatever. So I actually, I actually experiment what it's going to look like by drawing it myself, and then ripping it up and doing it again and trying it different way.
3: Lambert had been in uh, Greystoke, but it, I, I, he didn't have a whole lot of dialogue in that. How was it working with him in his first, per, you know, yeah. major English role? Well, he didn't speak much English.
5: So we had a um, dialect coach on stage with us, and not only had to do had to do English, he also had to do Scottish as well in the flashback. And, you know, um, and so it was very strange having this French guy doing a Scottish accent, and we had Sean Connery, who's Scottish, doing sort of a Spanish Egyptian thing. But Sean basically just says Sean, and that sounds great anyway. So no one questioned it. So the funny thing you mentioned about Grace, So is I remember sitting over the office of the producers over in Hollywood here. Where we knew we had we Sean Connery and blah, blah, blah. And it was a bit like the Gone with the Wind story. Like, you know, who's going to play Scarlett O'Hara? And I was like, game? who the fuck can to play Highlander? And we're going through yeah, you know, the obvious 20 name lists of bandies around and all the obvious names. And I'm flipping through a magazine. I see this. Close up of Lambert from Greystoke. And I go, that's him. This is the guy. And he, cause he had these, this, these eyes and this, this brow and this look and this intensity. And I'd seen Subway and so I, and I'd seen Greystoke. But then I remember, this, I remember just opening his magazine and I'd forgotten about Greystoke. And I just saw this close up of him and I went, that's the guy. And, uh, we met him and, uh, he was very enthusiastic and he's still a good friend. And, uh, he was still green enough in the industry is that we had Sean, uh, I think we had Sean for seven days or something. There are whole scenes where we would shoot just Connery, mid, mid shot, close up, whatever. And we'd shoot over Christopher, over Lambert. And we wouldn't go, we wouldn't turn around and do Lambert's dialogue. We'd then come back three weeks later and shoot over a double of Connery, and we'd shoot Lambert, doing his dialogue to a double. It's the only way we could get Sean done in seven days. This was a fairly
3: early role for Clancy Brown as well.
5: Yeah, and what a sweetheart. What a good actor, what a sweetheart. And it's funny, you he's, like, he's a bad uh, bad characters, evil characters on film, and they're usually the nicest guys. He totally ate that role up. I think he really adored it when he went ball with the safety pins in the neck. And that's in the church. He just, like, I think I think, surprised us all at what he did now.
3: <laughs>
5: we all went, whoa. Because uh, it was like, we're really crossing the bar here with the church. But anyway, whatever.
3: Yeah, his interaction with those nuns and the way yeah, they leave
5: the it's, church. Oh.
3: It's, um,
5: one could use the word, naughty. All in good humor. Not maybe not good taste, but definitely good humor.
3: Oh, and I love that shot of uh, that you did of him. Um, I don't know if it was a diopter shot or what it was, but how he's so close to the. Oh yeah, and then when when the when the hooker comes in.
5: No, I, I you know what I I I, mean, I, I can't remember I, I don't think it was a diopter. I think it was just a, a good wide angle and enough light that the depth of the field was enough to hold both. It could have been a mild doctor because I can't. I look. I've, I've looked at that show and I can't see normally. You can see the line. And I'm like, I've used doctors before, and you know, department's used them a lot. And I can't quite see the line, so I'm. I'm. I'm guessing that we might have just had that depth, depth fulfilled.
3: At that point in your career, you had done so many music videos, and music is so important to your films and everything. I was curious when Queen came aboard as far as being on the soundtrack.
5: They came aboard pretty well, I think
3: as soon as, I think we'd finished shooting,
5: and I brought, I brought them up with an idea, of, you know, because I'd seen, um, Flash Gordon, I went down to the shooting of, uh, some of Flash at Sheppard so they came, we, we cut together this little 15 minute or 20 minute piece of various scenes. And they watched it and they just loved it. And they said, yes, we'll do it. And we each, we each want to write a song each. Freddie wrote, um, Princes of the, Princes of the Universe, I think. And, Brian May wrote, uh, Who Wants to Live Forever? Roger wrote, um, It's Kind of Magic. So they each wrote a different song. And then it took a lot, a little coaxing for Freddie to do the rendition of New York, New York. <laughs> He didn't, he didn't want to do it. And so I had to get him very drunk. No, no, I'm kidding. Freddie, Freddie was, um, a gem, um, and always will be. And he became, actually became very close to that band, that, those friends. I think actually when we were recording some of the songs for it, we we're in the, we we're in the studio and I think it was there later at night and I think Freddie even was so, teaching me some keyboards and I think um, one of the tracks I think I'm um, playing a few bad notes hey it was the 80s what can I say
3: that was some of the best integration and I know that oh there, yes you got to talk about the integration of Michael Kamen's music that
5: was amazing because Michael Kamen again a sad loss to us all but it was an absolute genius and done Brazil I think it was his he's just done Brazil I think he was also in a rock band in his earlier days. They became quite close together. They worked out this way of he would take their song and then turn it into this orchestration. It became this wonderful marriage. Uh, and and it's, it's hard to get to happen usually to get a song that then becomes a score and a theme. And so a lot of it is. Mo came in, and a lot of it is Mo came inspired by Queen. Yeah, but it was a, just a very good marriage of um, of two different musical entities.
3: When the movie was released, I remember it didn't do very well in the United States. Again, yes. Yeah. <laughs> my
5: my film seemed to do better in Europe. Yeah, you know? I don't know. Yeah, whatever, I don't know. Maybe that's because I'm Australian. I don't, I don't know.
3: That that movie came out when I was in high school, and it was the thing to rent. People loved renting Highlander, and that really kind of, for me, got its legs on the video market.
5: Right. I mean, I, I promise you. to I say, 2016, I received envelopes of VHS covers for me to sign, and you know, da da da, from these 16 year old, the 16 year old kid, somewhere in Texas or somewhere. And plus, he includes um, a Highlander comic book cover to sign. Um, yeah, and this is was, he wasn't even born when this film was made. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's, it's very it's, it's
3: odd. It doesn't do that well in the U.S. It does do well in Europe. How does it go on to spawn so much stuff? And especially, how does it go on to spawn Highlander two? Well. it... it, it <laughs> It didn't do well in the U.S.
5: Uh, one because I, I I don't know if you have you ever seen the poster for the U.S. poster? Is it the one with
3: just his face? The black and white face. Yeah, the black and white.
5: Face? Yeah, it is probably the worst film poster I've, I've ever seen.
3: Yeah, it looks like a like a cop on the run kind of and thing. it looks or... like a serial killer
5: film, yeah, a cheap sort of like, um, I don't know what it looks like, and it has nothing to do with the film and then you see the French poster and the other posters and they tell the story they give you an idea that of, of, of the genre, that black and white poster killed the film I think and the, and the complete zero lack of publicity,
3: probably, probably
5: unintentional, you know
3: no, I, I definitely know that a bad poster or a bad preview uh, can just ruin a, a film. Especially, so much of it now is, you know, so marketing focused.
5: Well, you know what, you know what, actually, pisses me off sometimes about um, film posters and billboards or whatever. Is if I, I see a billboard which is fantastic, but if that shot, if that shot is not in the movie, I get really angry. <laughs> Because, you know, and then it happens a few times where you, you get these posters and you go like, wow, okay, I'm going to see that. And then you go to the film and it's like, where was that shot?
3: I remember it was oh, God, just we're not going to talk about Highlander too, are we? Uh, well, I was going to ask a little bit about it, but I wanted to ask first about the first Highlander because I know there are different cuts of it that are available out there. Was that cut for the European market, or how do, how do those exist?
5: The American version was much shorter. It didn't include the World War II sequence, where he saves the young girl, Brenda. And by cutting that scene out, made no sense to the fact of why he was so close to his secretary. It sort of made us sort of rather perverse. I mean, it really did. It was like, why is he like, it's like, yeah, you a bit of a sicko. Um, but when you, get, when you see the World War II sequence, you understand that he basically saved her as a 12-year-old girl in the war. And he's brought her up as basically his daughter. So that scene was cut. And I think also the French scene, the dual scene in France, was cut in the American version, which is a very funny scene when he's drunk and getting shot and sad or constantly and he keeps getting back up again. But yeah, those two scenes were cut from the American version but then restored for the European release. In all fairness, I mean, I can understand why people probably didn't like it in America because it didn't make any sense.
3: The longer cut, the the Alternate cut, the European cut, however you want to call it. Now so it, It's calling the real it, cut. Even though it's only eight minutes longer, I think, it ends up being such a more solid movie.
5: Yeah. I think, for example, the French scene is comical. It's it's funny. It's, it's uh, whatever. But I think in even good genre horror films or what a fantasy films, whatever, you've got to have your light moments because I mean, then you can have your, da- your dark moments will be darker. But, you know, it was um whatever.
3: It's um the past of the past, you know? I, I won't belabor the point with Highlander too much, but I just oh, wanted to know don't. how... <laughs> but I did want to know, how did the film come about? Because it's five years after Highlander, and yeah. it just seemed like... Was it that the time was right for it, or how did... No. Well, I, you know what? I don't know the exact facts.
5: Because um, it's quite a way... What was it? Eighty nine.
3: Uh Yeah, 91, I think. 91? Really?
5: Okay. Yeah, it was just after the Falklands War, so it was really a brilliant idea for shooting in Argentina with a British crew. But I think Highlander had reached such a sort of following in Europe or whatever, they could raise enough money to make the sequel. The unfortunate thing is that the original Highlander it was before the whole idea of doing sequel, other sequel, and franchise, you know, which they do, which is happening now. You know, you, you leave you leave a door open, but Highlander was done as a as a one piece, a one single song, so to speak. Yeah, he won. He won the prize. He became he he, he became human or He lost, you know, lost his immortality. He could fall in love again. And go old, and that was the story. You know, that was the story. So then there was the great debate of like, well, how do we break that rule?
6: <laughs> <laughs>
5: <laughs> and there were a number of versions of scripts. And unfortunately, the agent I was with at that point had already signed me up to do it, and and just my agent, the, yeah, my old agent. Um, anyway. So eventually this, we're, it was already sort of in the works and the script sort of came out that they came from another planet or something and, and there's so many versions part of the two of trying to get it right um, because it was wrong from the beginning. Enough said. It was, a, it, it was, it was a good luck to them. I mean, it, it, it sort of, you know, they, they said, do you want, do you want to do Highlander 3? And I, so I said, ah, uh, no. Right. <laughs> um, cause I'm still confused about Highlander 2. But, you know, it did spawn another, like two or three movies and, uh, TV series. And I could never quite work out this concept of where all these other immortals were coming from. I, I, I think the lesson I learned in Highlander 2 was that and I'm to blame for it also and I, and I take responsibility for it is that uh, I broke that rule of, you know, in genre films you should stick to the rules of a genre. You can you can have a story about a pink spacecraft with green creatures crawling out of it and da-da-da-da-da-da but in the sequel it should, you should still stay within that sort of color range or that whatever that world, whatever you create, whatever, if if someone can breathe fire, then that's the audience will buy it. But you should stick to your rule book or your Bible, so to speak, your hypothetical, you know, you you should stick to those rules. And we broke a lot of rules in Ireland too. You shouldn't do that. I mean, I think uh, if you create a... A myth, and if you're on a film that you, you, you create a filmic myth, um, or sorry, then you should stick with those guidelines that you lay down. I work on a show called Team Wolf. There are guidelines, or there is basically a, a manuscript of like what you can and can't do. Uh, Scott McCall, he, he cannot walk, go invisible walk through a wall. He can turn to a werewolf and probably bash it, uh, and it'll break. But you know, I mean, you've got to stick to whatever parameters you set up, and I think the audience get really pissed off when you break those parameters that they they expect to see. You know, you you don't like say in Star Wars, you don't expect someone to say "beam me up" because that's Star Trek. That's not the Star Wars myth or or terminology here.
3: You know? So you you've got to stick to your, your own your own criteria. It doesn't seem like Highlander 2 slowed you down much because you went on to do some really big releases. I mean, I remember when The Real McCoy was coming out, when The Shadow came out. Seems like you bounced back fairly well from that.
5: Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, listen, I'm mean, it, it was. i probably, probably um, sounding more emotional than, than I was when I finished. I was probably just glad to finish that That was a long, now that was a long shoot. That was like, that was like 60 days or 70 days, I don't know. But I mean, basically all at night and it was six day weeks. Yeah, it was, it was brutal. And so I think I was just happy to get away from them. And you know, Buenos Aires, lovely town, lovely city, but it was, it was, it was sort of the, the wrong country. To do that sort of film, we had to bring so much equipment, so many people from the states and England and wherever, and then the, the exchange rate changed and everything. It all sort of fell apart. If you fall off a horse, I don't necessarily really get back on a horse, but I'll get back on a different a, different animal. So I did. Yes, I did pick myself up quickly and um, dust off and and carried on because so, you know I I, I, I love make, making films.
3: Um, I've taken up an hour of your time, so I don't want to take up a whole lot more here. Where are you calling from? From Detroit. I love Detroit. Have you shot here before? I
5: have. I did. Um, I did a film called Prayers with Bobby. Oh, that's right. Up there with uh, with Sigourney Weaver, and um, we shot not necessarily in Detroit. We shot around Detroit. We said in some of the suburbs, a uh, of school now. Yeah, I, 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 it's it was a, it was a great experience, a great you yeah. know we yeah, uh, I really enjoyed the, the people who were fabulous up
3: there. Yeah, we had quite a little film industry going for a little while here, and then the governor just cut the whole thing. Got oh, a new it, governor. What you ta- film tax? Yeah, just gutted it. Oh, that's crap! Because I, I was just about to suggest to a producer we shoot the
5: film. Just oh, no, oh,
3: damn. Well, they still have some, but it's just not what it was. Like for a little while there, it was just like you know, you would open up the newspaper or see on the website, yeah. you know, oh, this yeah. is shooting and this is shooting. But now it's yeah, more you like had,
5: you had, had Transformers up there and everything.
3: At one point, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is. Michael Bay really likes our city for some reason. <laughs>
5: Well, he love your railway station, I know that.
3: I wanted to compliment you, though. I, you have given us probably my favorite version of Resident Evil. The The Resident Evil Extinction is, I think, my favorite film in the franchise. Oh, thank you.
5: That was that was a there was a little
3: battle on that one in that
5: I said, you know what? Because they wanted to shoot it all at night again. Because all their other films, and in, 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 um, what's it called? Uh, not Rat City, um, whatever. Raccoon City. Ra- Raccoon, not Rat City, Ra- rac- Raccoon City, yes. Yeah. I said, you know what? They're coming across the desert towards Vegas and blah, blah, blah. You've got to see this day. The zombies, you, they don't, they won't look good in daylight. And so they actually paid for this very expensive 35 mil test out in, and then to Lancaster or somewhere, We got the camera set up and all the zombies made up, and we shot them sort of running around in broad daylight and backlit and whatever, and dust and things, and, and they looked at the rushes and went, oh yeah, they're so scary. Oh, okay. And it was like, I was like, oh, thank God for that, because I said, you know, I mean, if, if, if had all the electricity is out, Vegas is going to look like crap. You know, Vegas is a city of lights. So at least show it in the daylight and then you can show all the ruins or whatever. And so yeah, luckily they agreed to shoot it as a day. And I think it was refreshing to see because it was it, it, the other ones were, were too, it, was, it was all night.
3: No, you could actually see what was happening in the square. Yeah, yeah. and also the, the land, we, we
5: shot the exteriors out in Mexicali um, across the border from um, Yuma. The landscapes are just stunning. Those roads, mountains, and all that. And, and then we shot all the studios up in Mexico City and there's incredible studios they've got down there. I'm thinking, you know, they shot like Tarzan down
3: there and whatever. I mean, these are really sort of old-school, fabulous old Warner Brothers-type studios, you know? Yeah, some of those fights in the desert, I mean, just the choreography of everything, it just really comes together so well. Yeah, pretty
5: good in, like,
3: 128 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs>
5: yeah. I mean, it was just like it was like every 10 minutes, you would just get a bucket of water and pour it over yourself, and it would evaporate. You know, it was just like wow, it's hot. And 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 there'd be there'd be crowd scenes of zombies, and you'd be filming, and all of a sudden you'd be watching the monitor, and you'd see like one just sort of like. Painting and another one going down, and then medics running in, pulling them out, like <laughs> zombie down, zombie down. Because those poor, those poor, those poor, like background players or whatever, uh, um, wearing that heavy makeup it was like, uh, we were at 128, 100, 128 degrees, and they, under that makeup, must have 135, you know, whatever. I don't know.
3: Jesus. Real quick, too, I wanted to tell you how much I like Give 'em Helm Alone. Oh, thank
5: you. It's why, you know what? I actually like that film, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was a, that was, that was, uh, where did, we, where did we shoot that? I think it was Washington State, and I enjoyed doing that. It. it was a fast shoot, but it was a fun script, I thought. You had a uh, great, great cast in that, too. And, even, and we even had like, the coming out of Gregory Harrison again. He was he uh, gracious enough to come back and do that role. Now we had really, really, really excellent cast, and, um, Yeah, it was was fun. It was good. But I I don't know, have you ever seen a film called uh, Resurrection? You'll have to watch it tonight, won't you? That was like the late 90s, right? Yeah, Lambert's in it. Um, I forget where we shot it. Uh, I think we shot it in, um, it's meant to be Chicago, but we shot it in Toronto, actually. And then we shot it a couple of days in Chicago. Jonathan Freeman was a DP, fantastic DP. And that's worth seeing. Yeah, it's fun.
3: Oh, and you've got Leland Orser
5: in that one. I love that guy. Oh, Leland Orser is terrific. He plays the um, sidekick with uh, Christoph, and uh, yeah, he, was, he 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 um, was he's fabulous. In
3: it. Oh, and you got to cover up uh, Lambert's accent by having him be a Cajun.
5: That's correct, yes. That's
3: <laughs> kind of what they do to Jean-Claude Van Damme these days. They're like, oh, he's Cajun.
5: That's a good, that's a good one, isn't it?
3: That's a <laughs> Okay, we'll buy that. Are you still working on Teen Wolf these days?
5: Yeah, we're just about to do Season 6. So it's still editing the last episode of Season 5, which goes on in not too too far away in March, I think. But, um, yeah, we start shooting Season 6 in about uh, four
3: weeks. I have to tell you, this was a real, real treat for me talking to you because I've been such an admirer of your work for a long time, so I was really glad to have this opportunity. Well, it's a pleasure
5: talking to you, and... um, I had uh hope a lot the one of it made sense.
7: We are back and we're talking about Highlander. Now, um, I have talked to a couple other people about Highlander 2 over the the years of doing this show. Can you believe 300 uh, episodes this one? But John C. McGinley talked about his role in Highlander 2 on Get Carter. And Ian Jones, I believe it was the episode on 10 Canoes. It was either that one or or um, Bad Boy Bubby, where I asked him about uh, Highlander 2, he didn't have a whole lot to say about it. John C. McGinley did have some good things to say about it, especially that he was channeling Orson Welles and trying to do an Orson Welles voice for uh, Highlander 2, and he, um,
8: he regrets it to this day. <laughs> you can kind of see where he was going, though. Kind of, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, come on, he got to have his balls crushed by Michael Ironside. That's, <laughs> that's everyone's dream.
4: We also had to have that. Got to have that ridiculous laugh <laughs> throughout the whole movie, which I can't even. I can't even try to imitate that. Maybe
2: one day the ozone layer will repair itself. That would indeed be a great day for the human race, wouldn't it? But it really makes no difference anymore, since you built the shield to last forever. Nothing
1: lasts forever. <laughs>
7: So Highlander ended up being a very successful film on video. It was something that we all saw either on cable or on VHS. Really had an impact. And then, what, five years later comes the sequel with Highlander 2, which at the time I believe was called Highlander 2 The Quickening. There have been other names for this, kind of like Highlander 3 having multiple names. (laughs) But Highlander 2, Mike, did you and I go see that together?
4: No, I watched that one it, yeah, no, we I don't think we had met yet. Because that was that was like oh, right. it, it was a couple years before we met. I remember watching it on on video with uh with my the same friend I watched the first one with <laughs> as kids. And um and I just remember laughing a lot. <laughs> I saw it at the movie theater. Oh wow.
8: Yeah. You were one of those six people, huh? Yeah. <laughs>
7: one of those, yeah. And I just I was struck the whole time. <laughs> because the first movie, let's just put this out there. The first movie is all about a struggle to be the last man standing. So we've got this whole thing of all these people throughout time who have been fighting one another and friends with one another. And ultimately the whole thing is well, there's going to be two final people two final like you know you can call them thunders, but it's not really true two final immortals and they're going to battle it out and then the last one ends up getting this prize They didn't really know what the prize was but then it sounds like it's all of you know the knowledge of the world kind of thing and hey fantastic the movie's over great Now we're going to spend the next 30-some years trying
8: to dismantle (laughs) what this first movie (laughs) did. Okay, okay, Mike, you have not seen the later movies. If you think Highlander 2 dismantled the the continuity, you you can't even believe how bad the source actually rapes it and then pisses on it, then sets it on fire, and then rapes it again.
4: I have not seen the source, but I have seen... Part Three, maybe only once, and if I remember correctly, part Three is the one where it turns out there were like three immortals
8: who were buried under the ground, and I, I, yeah, they I, actually do try to explain that i'll I'll explain okay. that a little bit when we get to part three, but, but, but I was three just actually like, hey, attempts this, to explain how this can still happen though right. <laughs>
7: I apparently last night I watched one of the – I mean there are so many versions of Heinleiter 2 out there. And I I put together uh, uh, in the uh, Dropbox, uh, I put together a few um, of these fan edits because people have been desperately – trying to make this movie less worse as the the time has gone on. because Less
8: worse. I like
4: that. I I just believe that that is impossible.
7: I am completely with you on that. I was watching one version the other night, and it starts off with Queen, and it's going through Mm -hmm. all this stuff. And I'm like, wow, this kind of really doesn't work because it's not in time with the music at all. And then it, like, takes the the queen theme all the way into the opera mm-hmm. and then kind of mixes into the opera. And I was just like, yeah, that, that really didn't work. And, of course, there's the opening uh, scroll going on. And I can't even tell you how many different scrolls I've seen to open up this movie now between – the The quickening and then the renegade cut, which was allegedly the director's cut of this movie, and then mike you you saw one called what was it the fairy tale cut or something? the
4: fairy tale cut, if I'm remembering correctly, is the one that <laughs> that has the ending where he's floating in, in
8: <laughs> he's no, floating no no, no no he he actually takes when he beats. General Katana, such an original name, he (laughs) he ends up able to take her back to Zeist with him, and they kind of become star children. And then there's like a mention of them having babies because on the the, the prize, that was actually the British theatrical release ending.
4: The disc that I have, the the collector's edition of Highlander 2, which has, which is welcome, (laughs) thank you, which has, which has two discs (laughs) and the the second one has the deleted scenes and watching the deleted scene of the fairy tale ending is so fantastic because it's not finished so it's cut together with like virginia madsen on the ground and then it cuts to lambert and he's literally against a blue screen with wires (laughs) holding his hands out trying to act like he's just going off into the cosmos
8: (laughs) because okay that i've actually seen the one the 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 american tv cut uses that ending as well and i've seen that complete
4: yeah this wow. this had all of those different endings because it had it did have the complete ending where the two of them embraced but it looks like they shot from what i'd watched last night it looks like they shot two different versions of that one where he did leave without her and then another one where they went off together
8: okay because i remember the one where they where he went off where they went yeah. off together that's the one that i would catch on syndicated tv now and then they're all terrible. Except here's the one thing you can always say about Highlander 2 it at least looks good. Yeah. I, I honestly, the production design, I love the lighting of under the shield, how everything has that always wet sheen. I like the lighting. I like the blue or later on red lighting, depending on which <laughs> cut you're going for. And, and I think things. the money is on the screen, and that's a good thing.
4: Well a lot of it I thought a lot of that was though they they had, they were reusing the sets from from Batman. I think that helped a lot but the scene at the beginning when he is when the two hedgehog guys <laughs> oh my god and there when when the one guy gets his head cut off and then his it body it's just it's it's absolutely incredible. <laughs> He's barely moving when he crashes into that that electric electric or power box or whatever it is. But yeah, the rest of it does look really good. I mean, the the shield effect it was actually pretty good.
8: And you know what? I actually kind of like maybe not for a Highlander movie, but that whole shield subplot of they needed to heal the ozone, but now it's a big company that wants to keep the profits up, so they're keeping this big secret and the team of commandos trying to expose the truth that the whole world's being fleeced by these guys and the ozone is fine. That's a fine subplot for a different movie.
4: Right, that's not or that's a fine pl- plot for a, an in, an entire movie, but it's just w- watching it last night um, before I finally had to stop. Um, like, the, my, One of the best parts about it is when Virginia Manson's character tries to explain everything that's happening.
1: Okay, now let me just see if I can get this straight. You're mortal there, but you're immortal here until you kill all the guys from there who have come here, and then you're mortal here. Unless you go back there... Or some more guys from there come here, in which case you become immortal
6: here
4: again. Let's say it's a kind of magic. And then they just move right on to what she's, and that when she's done. She's like, OK, listen, we need to talk
8: about the shield problem. <laughs> and you're like, Wait, this well, is like, a Highlander movie. <laughs> we also got to talk about Michael Ironside. <laughs> he might He might not have been – his character might not have been a great villain. He was having a ball playing I this role see. though. He, he looks like he a- is having the most fun he has ever had playing General Katana. And did you guys ever see – even though they're, they only aired in I, – I think it was like France or Scotland where as General Katana, he was a pitch man for molten ice beer. I wish I were making this up. I'm so happy that you're not. <laughs>
1: History teaches that the strong survive by becoming stronger. This lesson has not been lost on Labatt. Creators
4: of ice brewing, now Labatt Maximum Ice. Only Labatt possesses the power of ice brewing, and only ice brewing can create Labatt Maximum Ice. The ultimate balance of smoothness and strength. Who
0: says lightning doesn't strike twice?
7: I know this is near impossible, but I want to try to sum up the plot a little bit. You, you kind of did. Well, I mean, I
4: think we're, it depends on which version we're, we're talking about because. That's the thing. Like, like, I couldn't. I had totally forgotten that in this new version, they had eliminated all the references to Zeist. Yes, like they thought that was going to fix it. How is removing that going to help this make more sense?
7: So when I saw it at the theater, it was that they are from, they are uh, the the immortals are exiles from the planet Zeist, mm-hmm. and I just had such a problem with that because of Ramirez being. 2000 years older than connor and i was just like what did they send them well in that in that draft
8: there's actually a line of dialogue we won't be together for many centuries or something like that." yeah
4: yeah he says that that's in the movie but also in the draft it it talks it like shows them there's like a montage sequence where they're born and like growing up in the different in in the different times and stuff like that weird well, that and the fact that that back on Zeist they had like they had a monitor, so they were like the entire the entire planet was watching his fight with the Kurgan and cheering him on. And I was when I read that in the draft, that was when I I, I don't remember that being in the movie at all. Was that in the movie?
8: <laughs> well, no, then, I don't
4: see, think there's any version that, of that that exists.
8: No, I've never seen that version. But what what I did like is how when they put their hand in the blue toilet water and then they had the electricity, <laughs> how it kind of like married their souls. Mm-hmm. You know, that they were kind of gay married through time or something. I think there's a new Chuck Tingle book, Gay Married Through Time. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, even in the in the uh, in the script, there's a, it's a bond that will never be broken. And I think it was almost like it was like fan service in the description in the script. <laughs>
8: I I expected them to kiss after that.
4: (laughs) So now that you've summed up the plot of the movie perfectly.
8: (laughs) Oh my God. Well, you didn't even mention Sean Connery's back in the most bizarre way possible. And they only had him for three days. (laughs) They had to cram all of the. And the ironic thing is, he got paid more for his 3 oh, yeah. days of work than he got paid on the entirety of the first film. Yep. He was paid almost I think it was $10,000 a minute per of screen time. Yeah. It's a good thing they made that suit
4: for him in less than, you know, in so only only so many
8: hours. Well, hey, i <laughs> paid for it with a pearl, so yeah. I mean I, I yeah. didn't realize maybe in the future that's, you know, currency. Only in a future where everything goes backwards. <laughs> and also he could carry his sword on the plane. <laughs>
4: I was so angry when I was watching that last the, the director's cut and real last night and realized that they had removed the plane safety video.
7: That was in the version I was
8: yes, watching. That, that was, was in the original funny version, scene, though.
4: Yes, yeah, it's great. That scene belongs in a Paul Verhoeven. Well, film. that's what I was thinking watching this last night is there's a RoboCop type sensibility or an attempt for RoboCop type sensibility to this movie like that and the weird cooking show that they have. And, and they, they're they not successful, but you can see what they're trying to do. It's pretty well known that it was um,
7: kind of mucked with by the producers. Mm-hmm. And when I look at some of the things that William Panzer and Peter S. Davies have done over the years, it's just like, wow. And, and <laughs> Panzer gets a, a story credit on here, and I think that he's probably
8: the guy to blame for this thing. Actually, it's less their fault. I'm not trying to alleviate blame from them because they do deserve a lot of it. But it was the bonding company. When they went over budget, the bonding company got control. And the bonding company apparently just started literally tearing random pages out of the script to make (laughs) everything fit into the new budget. And the bonding company also controlled the final edit. So it's there was the bonding company. I think Panzer and Davis were they really didn't have any way out of this one. I don't think, I mean, this one feels like,
7: like an Ovidio Asinitis type project. It feels like somebody, no, cause
8: Asinitis has a quality
7: level. He won't dip. I mean, space Jesus would have been right at home in this movie. This could have been a spiritual sequel to some of the ideas of, uh, the visitor. I mean, there are some strange ass things happening in here. And then yeah, to go from the planet Zeiss to, these guys are from a long time ago or where right, they're, or no they're, they're way from, in the
4: future or they're, yes they're from the future it was
8: time future. travel this time wasn't it yeah yeah they decided yes. they they were gonna
4: send them to the past but then that still doesn't ever really explain like the difference like it because in one in that draft they also talk about like well you know on Zeist one day here is like a year there or some nonsense like that was the thing that I I never really understood was like well, if Michael Ironside's all mad, like, why didn't he go back before now <laughs> and kill this and kill this guy? Why did he wait after he won the prize and then come back? You know, 20, I'll let him. I'll let him fix the ozone layer first, and then I'm going to go back <laughs> and take care of all
8: this. Or, or if you think about Michael Ironside's plan, McLeod would have died of old age unless he hadn't right. sent his idiots back. And then he gets pissed off at McLeod for not dying when it's his fucking fault, right? <laughs>
4: Well, doesn't McLeod even talk to him about that at one point? Like, yeah, oh, you know, he's, he's like, if you,
8: you would have just left <laughs> like, me the fuck alone,
4: yeah, that's in the in that draft too. When he's he's just like, uh, he's like, I wasn't even gonna go back. <laughs> I was just gonna stay here. But well, here's
8: what you did. General Katana is not nearly as effective as the Kurgan is. No. Although I I do like the scene where he is invading the boardroom and he's being needlessly <laughs> cruel to the one guy, just breaking his jaw for fun. Yeah. <laughs> I, again you can see michael ironside is having so much fun yeah
4: he's 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 chewing up the scenery with both hands
8: i don't know why the
7: rift tracks guys would do well, I don't know why they do half the stuff that they do. Like, why they would riff something like Starship Troopers and make that a big event movie and have that theatrically and all this kind of stuff. When when Mystery Science Theater was on, I was begging, you know, is there a way that they could do Highlander 2? Because This really stands as one of the worst movies ever made. I mean, people will throw that term around willy-nilly, but I think I've truly sat through some of the worst films ever made that are available publicly, because I'm sure there's tons that aren't available publicly. But this one is one of those movies. I mean, yes, it looks great. Uh, There's some
4: okay performances. The music isn't bad, but really, I mean, just... The story is just so terrible. It's it is aggressively nonsensical.
7: It, had they gone like for some Dadaism or something, that would have been something, but I think we're supposed to believe what's happening here, so I don't know why this isn't like the banner movie that Rift tracks does, you know, trots
8: it out every six months. Like this this is up there with the room, you know? <laughs> I, I do know that Mystery Science Theater tried to get this oh yeah uh, but it was a rights thing because they were asked once about movies that they've never done this is pre riff tracks and all of them were like Highlander 2 that just for whatever reason whatever company owns it owned it at that point specifically would not give it to them because they didn't want it to be a mystery science theater episode
7: I remember I did an article years ago about fan uh, videos and how there were fan attempts at doing Mystery Science Theater. And this was before Riff so where you could, like, I guess, sign up as a guest commentator, this whole thing. I don't even understand how that works. But there were people who would do fan versions of MST3K, and one of the
8: episodes was them – trying to do uh highlander i have that one and the star trek 5 one by the same people and yeah their mystery science theater was a special thing these people didn't yeah. capture it
7: when you are with someone who's poorly riffing a movie it's uh there's a special level of hell reserved for them <laughs> yes but I have to say that I did appreciate the article that you wrote about this film, Mike, and this was one of those things that I would actually go back in the back issues of Cashier's to Cinemart and reread this just because I appreciated your approach to how
4: this film was made. Uh, yeah, I went back and reread that myself. It, it, the idea that if they actually did approach this as saying we're not going to write around the plot holes, we're going to write a giant plot hole. We're <laughs> going to write continue, into them. Yeah, and just continue feeding that plot hole <laughs> was was it, it just seemed like that must be what had happened. But actually, I think the gist of the article was also that once they once they embraced the nature of it, that the plot hole just took over <laughs> and, and began began to make all its own demands, and and pretty soon like it wasn't enough for this movie to just make, not make a little bit of sense. It had to make absolutely no sense whatsoever. As you continue to cram all these elements that don't fit together into this one movie. And that's the thing that's also impressive to me about it is the fact that it's only two
8: hours. <laughs> then, then Let me ask you guys this then. If the first film had not been so good, do you think this movie would have still hurt as bad? It still would have been as bad of a movie but would it have hurt as bad if the first film was only okay or is it is this movie worse because the first film is so fucking good oh that's a really good question i mean
7: i, I think, think there yes.
4: might be just just a little touch of it i would say yes because for me personally because here we are with these with these two characters that we cared about so much in this first movie and if we didn't have that in the first movie then this would just be like well this is dumb and i don't i'm not invested right but because they're back again and they've even though they've come come up with this completely idiotic way to bring them back they're there but they're trapped in this completely idiotic <laughs> storyline i just think that that's it's so frustrating to see them there and want them to be able to do something better and meaningful after what they went through in the first movie you know like they like even maybe this is getting a little too emotional but you you he lost ramirez and that was a big part of his life the loss of him and then in the sequel oh he's back now oh but he's going to be gone one this because this giant fan is a problem
8: <laughs> is okay so is highlander 2 the quickening kind of the killing of hicks and newt in the first minute of alien 3 for this franchise
4: Yes. I think it's worse than that. It's definitely worse than that because that was only one minute, (laughs) and this is I don't know how many different versions.
7: Do you think that there are idiots out there that like this movie the way that there are idiots out there that like the
8: prequels? Probably, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm sure there are.
4: I'm sure that there are, but I think that (laughs) to a certain extent there are probably some who kind of came at this the way Josh was just just suggesting. Like let's say – you saw this movie first, you know, and you never saw the other one. And this was the movie that, for some reason, you you, you saw it right at the right time when you were too young to know that it was god awful, <laughs> and it just became you know part of your childhood. I could see that. That's the only way I could see that that making it okay. <laughs> So I'm curious how much
7: of this movie influenced the movies and the TV show and the animated versions and the comic books and the novelizations and all that kind of stuff that came after,
8: or was this one just kind of swept under the rug? It was kind of both, because it influenced them in a never-do-that-again way. Exactly
4: exactly because
8: that that was the thing when if you, if you remember the making of you know when Highlander 3 the sorcerer was coming up in the magazines and the TV, the sci-fi channel special and all that they specifically were like we want to get as far away from Highlander 2 as possible so in a way it influenced everything that came after in a positive way of them saying we've now hit rock bottom we have nowhere to go but up right and in another way the TV series was, or the, the not the TV series, the cartoon was clearly influenced by this one. I don't know why they decided to use this as the influence for the cartoon, but okay, because the cartoon takes place nine hundred years in the future, and it's got a lot of the same stuff, and there are alien planets. They don't call it Zeist, and yeah, the, the cartoon isn't a TV series version of this movie, but for some reason they latched onto this for the aesthetics.
7: There's such a thing. In this movie about and in the well actually in the first movie about uh Highlanders or or immortals not being able to have children, and you know that's a that's a big deal for Connor and heather and stuff and and all, um you know i I can see where that's kind of important, but then it's so weird that like isn't it like another there's definitely another McLeod and and uh, i i 'm sure that it can be a client member uh, there 's another McLeod in the TV series, and then isn 't there yet another mcLeod
8: in the um, uh, the animated version The animated version is Quentin McLeod, and the Duncan McLeod in the TV series is not blood related that duncan mcLeod his his clan when he was a baby, was completely massacred, uh, a la Beastmasters, the Jud the Juns, and <laughs> and he was found and he was adopted into the clan McLeod. So he's not blood to Connor. He's just a McLeod by name. That's why he has a British
7: accent and Connor has a French accent.
4: <laughs> I guess. And they're both immortals because that's what the screenplay needed.
7: Highlander 2 was 1991. Highlander, the TV series, was ninety. Uh, Highlander the animated series was 94 and then Highlander 3 which I knew as the magician or the sorcerer and now is being called the final final dimension dimension. that was 1994 I was done with this series after 91 as I said before so how does the final dimension how how does what does Mario Van Peebles bring to the game here not much.
8: <laughs> As a character, he's basically a black Kurgan, really. Right. Right. Well, yeah.
4: I mean, he's he's not. Uh, I've, I I haven't seen that one in about twenty years because I couldn't get past the whole. The, like I said before, the the these three immortals just got buried alive in this mystical power that controls the the handing out of the prize. Just oh, we forgot those dudes were there. Oh, they're there. Well, we need to start this all over again. <laughs>
8: Okay, the, the the TV series established that magic outside of the quickening and stuff actually does exist.
4: It's a kind of, yeah.
8: <laughs> no, but I mean like witches and curses and shit kind of magic. The TV series established that. So in this, Mako is an immortal and he is a sorcerer, the title The Sorcerer. And when, when but Mario... did they address that in the movie? Yes.
4: Oh, okay, okay. Because Mako's
8: only in the first five minutes of the movie. He, he gets beheaded pretty quickly and then his his disembodied head starts laughing and he curses <laughs> them and seals them into this mountain so they are magically protected so they can never get the prize
4: Ah uh, so
8: I, th- that's their kind of lame but we didn't know what else to do attempt to explain why they didn't count in the first film because they were magically shielded
4: is this the one where his sword gets destroyed yes. he has to his sword it? gets okay. shattered
8: okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because because Mario Van Peebles is a shapeshifter in this, he can turn into <laughs> birds and tigers. And I'm not. This just gets better and better. Not, <laughs> and and then he kidnaps McLeod's son. And they actually do explain that one in the European cut. In the American cut, you're just going, "Why does McLeod have a son? They couldn't have kids. <laughs> it's, it's he adopted the child at birth."
4: Oh, was well, he? So, I thought it, he could have children though after winning the prize in the original one. It, and I it, thought that this.
8: I, in this one, so oh, but, but the kid doesn't know it, <laughs> and and then and then Maria Van Peebles eats a condom when he doesn't understand what it is when he's <laughs> in in modern day New York, and, and then there's a really gratuitous sex scene that is admittedly kind of sexy but doesn't do anything to the plot because well that's with uh,
4: Deborah Carr Unger
8: right yeah and her yeah and see, I remember so that <laughs> I might have to watch at all. It. Their characters are supposed to be uh, cross-time lovers because she's actually the reincarnation of a lover he had in, like, 18th century France. And the more I'm talking about this, the dumber it sounds. I was almost ready to make the argument that this one was worse than two.
4: (laughs) But then I realized the only successful way to do that would be to go back and watch this one. And since I couldn't get through two, <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to go I back. Remember,
8: to, this was the first one I saw in the theater, and I remember enjoying it at the time, but I haven't seen it, like you said, in like 20 years. So I'm going off memory here, but now that I'm saying it out loud, it does sound pretty dumb. The only one I ever saw in the theater was Endgame. Oh, my God. I saw that in the theater, too. Which of the six versions of that do you hate the most? I,
4: I've, only, I've only seen it once in the theater, and when we watched it, I think – my, my wife and I were both like admiring the fact that they had tried to sort of take care of so many things. They weren't successful at all, really. But like they made Rachel, it worse. Rachel comes back, Heather comes back, everybody comes back, and it's just like. But then you, and then you they're realize
8: killed after one minute,
4: right? And then Connor's back, and then you. But then you realize this is all just about transitioning all of these old things oh this is the worst type of fan service and it's just trying to transition everything from Connor to Duncan literally. <laughs>
8: Let's finish three before we get into any yeah. <laughs> backstory on the TV series to understand Endgame. And even then, you're still not going to do it. Well, yeah. If there's a sex scene with Deborah Kerr, I'm i might have to watch this movie. And, okay, make sure you get the uncut version because that was also heavily censored in the American R-rated <laughs> cut.
7: Mario Van Peebles didn't take this one and, and elevate it to uh, a a, a, some, a new fresh franchise for you guys. No i' I
8: was uh, a huge yeah. fan of the t v series at this point. I was watching all of those first run. I caught the cartoon now and then, but the cartoon was fucking stupid <laughs> but the the t v series I enjoyed for what it was until season five. Season five and six were just pathetic on so many levels but like Mike you watched i made you i gave you the the pilot since Connor's in that right. What did you think in its 1992 context?
7: Well, I liked seeing Richard Mall. That was really nice. <laughs> some pe- some wags call me slander the cat. So I'm just thinking, all right, is every week you're going to have a new outrageous villain and these guys have to cut his head off
8: by the end of the show? That's kind of a interesting premise. That's what it devolved into, but the first season they were afraid of becoming that. So out of the 24 episodes in Season 1, McCullough only maybe fought 10 other Immortals. Otherwise, he was fighting drug dealers and the mob. He caught a rapist in one. He was tracking a serial killer, uh, Joey Pants, and it was a crazy doctor who ended up finding out he was immortal and tried to steal his immortality. They brought in a witch. And so it eventually devolved into Evil Immortal of the Week, but Season 1 really did try to not do that. The, the Highlander, the series was co-produced, by a French and German company. So the episodes ran longer over there, and they had nudity in those. I don't remember if the one I sent you was the nudity version, but when you watch the uncut version, you go, wow, that was not going to air on American TV in (laughs) 1992 like that. This is definitely the European version we got on VHS at the time.
7: It's so strange to me that they're running – Highlander the TV series and Highlander the animated series at the same time that they then put out the final dimension aka the sorcerer aka the magician I mean that's just strange that they would do that it it almost feels like a, a never say never again kind of situation where it's like well we've got the rights theatrically and you guys have the rights TV wise.
8: Well, they tried to link them all together, hence Connor's appearance in the pilot, and then he he was mentioned a few other times that obviously they couldn't get Christopher Lambert, but there was a couple other times when they're like, oh, hey, Connor just left or something like that. So they tried to keep all of them in continuity with one another, but it got ridiculous. It was a ridiculous juggling act. I'm just amazed that that even happened
4: that this movie would the first movie would expand into this franchise of that would cover so many different <laughs> different things at the same time.
8: And and that doesn't even get into the debacle that was the spin-off of the TV series The Raven. <gasps> <laughs> I forgot all about that. As you now, which have. one was the Raven? The ra- okay, there was a regular character on Highlander, the series, uh, Amanda. She was a thief that Duncan McLeod had constantly encountered, played by Elizabeth Grayson. Ironically enough, one of the – Elizabeth Grayson became famous for being one of the prostitutes that blew Bill Clinton back when he was in office. They desperately the, – the show was only contracted for five seasons, and the ratings were still Amazing. So, they wanted one more season to go out on. Well, Adrian Paul and everyone's contracts were up, so they had a lot of renegotiation power. So, they said, okay, we want one more half season, 13 episodes for season six. And of those 13, seven of them were backdoor pilots to try and find a character to make a spin-off out of so they wouldn't have to deal with Adrian Paul anymore. <laughs> and not a single one of them worked at all. So they just said, oh, Amanda's a regular on the show. Let's give her her own show. The problem is her character only works as a second banana. She does not work as a main character. Couple with that with the fact that it's shot in Eastern Europe. It, it, it takes place in America. Couple that with the fact that her and Paul Johansson, her co-star, have absolutely zero chemistry and actually hated each other to the point where they couldn't be on set together if they weren't (laughs) shooting. Couple that with the fact that she was literally crazy at the time. Her boyfriend – it's going to sound like I'm making this up. I swear this is accurate. Her boyfriend at the time was feeding her mind-altering drugs and had her convinced that Paul Johansson was an agent of the CIA who was trying to kill her. (laughs) So –
7: I mean that's horrible, but also
8: fantastic. Not, you can see how this did not work as a TV series, even if the writing had been good, which it wasn't.
4: But everything you just described seems like it would have all also. This is all; these are all the deleted scenes from Highlander too. <laughs> you
8: think. I mean, and they know how bad the Raven is. The documentary on the DVD is called "The Unmaking of a Series." <laughs> So they have no delusions that this was a fuck up of monumental proportions of a spinoff. And it lasted one season. Nobody cared. And then they went into what became Endgame where they're like, "Okay, the TV shows are now moving into the movie realm. And God, did that not work? Was
7: that I remember way back when I was running Super Happy Fun, I remember selling something called Highlander five and i didn't even know there was a highlander four was that one of these things was that the source no because the source only came out a few years ago okay so what was the so end game would be considered <laughs> four right
8: okay now what was end game end game was Connor mcleod christopher lambert is getting too old to portray an immortal anymore so they said we want to make this into the tv series so this was connor and duncan getting together to fight one huge villain and merging the tv series and the movies killing connor and then mm-hmm. giving eight a- giving adrian paul as duncan a new movie franchise to follow after this since the tv series were off the air at this point this was supposed to be like a handing of the torch kind of film right. And Connor does die, and this is a monumentally god-awful film on every level. (laughs) It, It was so bad, they had to commit fraud to get you to go see it. If you watch the original trailer, the very yeah. first trailer they released, the one yep. with the Rob Zombie song that it was cut to, it's full of scenes of Duncan and Connor jumping out of a time portal, the villain mm-hmm. stopping a sword in midair, uh, the villain getting split in half and becoming the two and guys. split in half part, that's what I remember the most.
4: The and, um, and movie and never yeah. – waiting for that to happen. <laughs>
8: counters head in like this bubble that's screaming and it's got this this guy sniping immortals off of a roof and all these immortals coming out of a building that's blowing up the scenes were never in the film and then they were never meant to be. Panzer and Davis said those scenes were shot for the trailer to quote make the trailer more exciting. So those scenes <laughs> were never meant to be part of the movie and they were actually sued for fraud for false representation. <laughs> And I think they had to pay, like, everybody in a class action lawsuit, like, $2 back (laughs) to prove you went to see the movie based on that trailer or some shit. They knew they had a stinker on their hands when they have to lie to you to get you to go see it. Has anybody made that movie? No, because that's the movie (laughs) I wanted to see. I'm like, there's time, time portals and all this magic, and it's like, what the fuck did I just see in the theater? It almost sounds like a Charles Band film, Like, There are six different cuts of this train wreck. Oh my god! Because <laughs> there's the theatrical cut, which was unfinished. They literally released the movie to theaters with a green or blue screen shot missing at the end. <laughs> at the end of the theatrical cut, Duncan is is over. Connor's grave and he's saying some words and there's all this blue behind him. And you you think, OK, you know, he, this is the blue sky because he's being buried in Scotland. OK, fine. And the camera pans around and you see the wide shot and it's not against a blue sky. And you go, oh, fuck, that was a blue screen shot. They forgot to composite. And that <laughs> the print They sent to theaters. <laughs> there was a work print that leaked out before the movie came out. So that's a different cut. Then when it came out to DVD, they listened to some of the complaints fans had, so they recut the movie. And so they put that version out on DVD. But then they put a work print on the DVD as a legal extra. But it's a different cut than the work print that leaked (laughs) out. Then there is the TV cut, which has scenes that are not in any other version of the film but are missing some scenes from the theatrical cut and the DVD cut. Then there's a version – there's a character named Faith in the movie who Duncan used to be married to, which is a huge continuity fuck-up from the TV series (laughs) because it was said he was never married. Now we find out 200 years ago he had a wife, but whatever, where she clearly gets killed in most versions of this where the villain Kel cuts her head off. That still happens in this one version of the TV cut, but test audiences liked her character, so she's back at the end with no explanation. All
4: makes more sense than Highlander (laughs) 2.
8: Sadly, yes.
7: (laughs) Wow. I'm I'm just like listening to that going, I wonder, there's got to be like a thousand
8: fan edits of that, Mm -hmm. you know, people trying to make that one make sense at all. Endgame was supposed to be it. And it just did not work. They fucked it up on every level. And it was so bad that not just with that that blue screen shot being left in, there's a repeat shot in the movie where on the commentary, they, the director talks about how they forgot to film a couple of bridging scenes in one of the fight scenes. So they just used some earlier shots from the same fight scene a couple of extra times. So it's, it's the like literal exact same shots again and again, a couple it's of like minutes. like watching an fun. episode of He-Man. Yeah, <laughs> they we're just hoping you wouldn't notice. <laughs> so yeah, Endgame is a fucking train wreck. Uh, so tell me about the source. The source was made in 2007, and I think it was a giant tax shelter scheme. This movie, it, it it's all from the t- it's all TV series characters. Shits on the entire franchise continuity. <laughs> uh, I mean, th- th- this thing is a diaper fetish shit on the entire <laughs> continuity. Okay. The source is so bad, Highlander fans actually were angry. They actually sent the director, Brent Leonard, hate mail after this about how he he, he did this on purpose to fuck with them. And first of all, <laughs> the film looks like a, an asylum film. Half of the movie is shot in Eastern Europe. The other half is clearly shot against a green screen. There are no major stars, a couple of actors from the TV series, and that's it. And somehow this fucking thing cost thirteen million dollars, and I say no, Brett Leonard and Adrian Paul walked away with twelve point five million dollars <laughs> because this thing all you got to do is watch the trailer and you go, "No way this fucking movie costs thirteen million dollars, not a chance it's so bad it turns out that immortality the immortals are looking for the source of immortality, so they they track this this one part to this one part of the world that nobody has been able to get to and the closer you get to the source your immortality goes away including all your healing abilities you become human and when you defeat the guardian of time when you defeat the guardian of time the the guardian of time you end up Ascending to the heavens, a la Highlander two again, and it turns out that you can have babies now, and that you springboard human evolution into the next phase. I mean, of course, after all everything else, where what else could you do? There's an anime version. That's the only one I haven't seen is the anime, is the anime movie. Because why the fuck not? <laughs> <laughs> they had anime x-men might as well have anime highlander right yeah they got anime uh um, uh starship troopers
7: and doctor who they they it's it's almost i'm surprised there's not a bollywood version of highlander <laughs> probably is just we haven't found it i mean it wouldn't make as much sense you know and i mean
4: it, mm, probably
7: more. Probably, a, probably more yeah so and then there's
8: supposed to be a remake of this thing which uh hopefully will never happen it was supposedly going to be the director of the like second and third Twilight movies and star Ryan Reynolds, but now that Deadpool's a big hit, hopefully that's dead or at least the Ryan Reynolds version is yeah, I was reading Carl um, Urban
7: for a little bit there that would hopefully he's successful enough that he doesn't have to stoop to that level
8: well, and then there was supposedly there was they were going to make another TV series in I don't know, mid 2000s, they were going to make another TV series. But considering the two guys that that pitched it, I'm glad it did. And it was done by that uh, Marcus and Melton, The the guys behind the later Saw movies and the the collector movies and and uh, the Feast films, you know, those guys that think they're way more clever than they are. It was going to be called Highlander Trinity, and it was supposedly about, like, three different immortals that can telepathically communicate through time, and they link their efforts to, like, you know, one guy does something in 18th century France, and then that affects something that happens in 19th century England, which affects something here. And it, was, it, it sounded so stupid, and it sounded like they thought, just like with all their stuff, oh, my God, this is so clever. I, that's really the thing, hate, like, I really hate those guys. Like, the, the
4: first movie – one of the reasons I think that, in a strange way, the first movie works is because, it's, because of its simplicity, right? And like, everything you're talking about right now is, oh, we've got to do all this time travel nonsense and, and explain immortality and blah, blah, and It's like, no, nobody
8: cares about any of
4: that shit. <laughs>
8: like, like, that was one of the reasons yeah. the first film worked. Right. You right. didn't need this stuff explained. OK, they're immortal. They're fighting for the prize. It, it, it's like with Night it. of, it's like with Night of the Living Dead. There are theories within the movie about why this is happening. But does it really matter? It's happening and their characters right. are dealing with it. Right. You don't need to always explain why. I mean, yes, there are some movies you watch and you go, you really need to explain why. And then there are some where you're like, no, that's just the plot. Move on. This is one of those. I mean, we've
7: brought up a couple, like, weird inconsistencies and stuff in the first Highlander. Who cares, you know? It's, it's, we don't have to see. We don't have to know what happens between where Connor is, you know, having the duel in, in France and then where he's, you know, saving Rachel from the the uh, Germans and then here he is in New York. I don't need to know all that other stuff, you know, and that's why even the, the side plot of Brenda finding out, you know how he's changing from one to another. I mean, it's kind of neat when when she uses the computer to use all those letters right. and make his signature and stuff. That's kind of cool. You know, great technology uh, back in nineteen eighty six. But
8: at, I kind of kind of looked at that scene as the figuring out Hannibal Lecter's toilet paper letter and Manhunter kind of scene. I, I was fascinated. Was that... I was fascinated on on a forensic type level. Even if it doesn't fit in the movie, it was a fascinating scene into itself.
7: It all kind of adds up, and that's why I can still go back and watch the first one. And luckily, Highlander 2 wasn't such a—I mean, it, it is a complete shitfest, but it luckily I can divorce it from the rest of the movie. I can divorce it from the first movie. You know, right. it's not like The Matrix, where I feel like the first movie is retroactively ruined for me by the
4: sequels. Yeah, I I would I would agree. I would just say, yeah, it still it stands alone (laughs) in spite of all this other stuff.
8: There really can be only one, right?
7: But we're going to try to milk seven
4: out of it, or however many. Now, I don't think there's any way that in in today's in the current studio mindset, I don't see how there's any way that we can really be certain that there or or. Or there's any way we can avoid a remake.
8: I I, I think if they made a remake, it would fall into the same kind of plot problem that if if you tried to remake Cobra, the Stallone. (laughs) Cobra was made so earnestly that it became such a cliched shit show. That right. if you tried to remake Cobra today, you would have to make it in a nudge-nudge, wink-wink kind of manner. And that's what a Highlander remake would be. They, they would have to or at least feel that they would have to acknowledge all of the TV series and the continuity and the stupid things and Highlander 2 and all this. And they, and they would not be able to make it time. straight. Exactly. it was a made for, It was made in 1985 and it's – honestly, it looks a lot better – than a 1985 movie of its budget should. Especially when you listen to the commentary and you find out how much of that movie was not shot in New York and and how... I've never understood how movies can be made like this. Like, you know, when Connor and, when Connor and the Kurgan are fighting on the Silver Cup stage, anything facing the Silver Cup is shot in England. Anything facing the back of the Silver Cup sign is shot in New York. The front scenes and the back scenes are shot, they fit together so seamlessly and they're shot 10 weeks apart. It takes a real director to be able to do that. I really don't think you could do that today. I don't think any director who would make a Highlander remake today would be able to get off the quality that Mulcahy was able to. Because he had, a lot of people look at people that directed music videos, they look down on them. I think his music video sensibility made that movie so special.
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. In terms of the, all the style that he brought to that.
7: Well, was that you I was having the conversation with Mike a couple of weeks ago when I was saying that uh I'm so surprised that Duran Duran yeah. didn't have a feature film. It was uh, you know, I remember renting the collection of videos from those first Duran you know, those early Duran Duran videos. Because they were mini movies, and Mulcahy was doing such an amazing job with them that I am just surprised that they never kind of took on a life of their own and became, you know, like you know the the knack and how to get it, or or you know, help or eight days a week or any of these kind of movies. Like it seems like Duran Duran should have been uh, in their own, uh, if nothing else, their own Spice World. You know,
8: <laughs> well, I mean, even if you look at like with Mulcahy, look at Razorback. That movie is a giant killer pig attacking a family for 90 minutes. But it looks fucking amazing. The lighting, the camera angles, the transitions. It's a gorgeous film. But really, it's a it's a music video. It's a 90-minute music video, and that's a good thing. The Highlander 2
7: is terrible, and I think he kind of got thrown into movie jail for a long time after that. I mean, with movies like The Real McCoy and The Shadow, yeah. I mean... Real McCoy, wow. I haven't seen that one, but Shadow was pretty bad. Yeah, Shadow was really bad. and But I will say that he directed my favorite Resident Evil film. I think Resident Evil 3 stands alone in that franchise as being a really, really good zombie film.
8: I don't think I can talk to you anymore. <laughs> All right. I've only seen okay. the first one. <laughs> How many times? I mean, that's not relevant. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> those, those are like the Highlander movies. They get worse each movie.
7: Yeah. I will definitely say
8: that, what, four,
7: five, and six, and what are they on? Seven, eight, eight or are nine on now? Six or seven now, and this no. is supposed to
8: be the last one. Yeah, the new one, I think, is eight. I don't know. Is I fucking really totally eight? lost track.
7: <laughs> there was an anime version, of course, <laughs> in there as well. Which is a different <laughs> continuity. Right. Right. And one of those characters, I think, ended up in one of the last movies, because I'm looking at this woman going, she looks like an anime character. (laughs) And for all I know,
8: she might actually be animated. I'm not sure. The movie is so fake looking, it's just impossible to tell. Well, it's just Mila Jovovich running around, you know, completely emotionless and having no expressions on her face. So it's kind of like when she was married to PTA. Oh, <laughs> it's just like when she was married to Paul Anderson. She was she wasn't married to Paul. No, she was married. To Thomas. No, Anderson. no, no. That, that's why I corrected myself. She's married to Paul Anderson. <laughs> Paul, Paul, Paul W.S. W. S. Yes. Yes. Anderson. Yeah, yes. Are they still married? Or are they are they? I don't know. After I the last it, Resident Evil movie, that should have been cause for divorce. I don't
4: know. I can't imagine any of the Resident Evil movies are as bad as ultraviolet. <laughs> All right.
7: On that note, we're going to take another break and
4: play a preview for next week's show.
2: got was when Lincoln was dead. What's a minimum of?
6: A
1: man shows respect even if it's for a dead damn Yankee president.
2: This is the unusual
1: story of a rebel who waged a one-man war against the United States. Filled with defeat and hate, he rode west to help the Sioux fight the damn Yankees.
6: Would you kill the Americans if we should go in the battle? Tell the (laughs) Sioux.
4: red nothing right to do now.
6: with
4: it. I'll go along with that. How do you take the word of this, rev He'll sell us out in two seconds. I say string him up, him and his squall.
1: You are a man of two countries,
6: but you can't kill Americans. If you kill or do not kill, you will always be unhappy as a
1: Sioux.
8: get four minutes. Four minutes to
2: shake your flag. I never strike my flag for an enemy or a rebel.
1: You listen to Driscoll. I promise we'll have your scouts in our belt by tomorrow morning. Yeah! <laughs>
7: That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Run of the Arrow from director Sam Fuller. Can't get really much different between The Highlander and Run of the Arrow. I will be joined by Joseph Madry and Colin Gallagher on that discussion. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Josh and Mike. So, Josh, what has been keeping you out of
8: prison lately? Working for Fangoria, working for Hustler, working for Night Flight, working for Forces of Geek, working for 1201 Beyond, and all broke. I'm still broke, ironically enough. No money for bail? No money for bail yet, which is why I keep your phone number on speed dial just in case.
7: And how about you, Mike? Anything new and exciting going on with you?
4: Well, I just had my first uh, comic book work ever published in uh, the uh, issue of The Women of Darby Pop. And other than that, I'm still trying to convince my kids that the 1980 Flash Gordon is a great movie. And the next thing I'll be working on will be the
8: uh, remake of Highlander 2. Very nice. Are you going to write into the plot holes like the first time? The plot hole will be writing through me. (laughs) Now I know you're
7: you're a big comic book guy. Now you said that there's a new Highlander comic book cuz we didn't get into that. You know, we could have talked about the novelizations and the books and all this stuff, but there's a new Highlander comic that's just been announced.
4: Yeah, apparently they're doing a prequel that's going to sort of explain Connor's I guess maybe Connor's life before Highlander took place, like maybe that the 1980s. Right? Exactly, exactly. Now now we're going to clear up all these mysteries. <laughs>
7: What was that village really like? Did he like haggis? <laughs> How could he really like haggis?
4: That's crazy. So were those were those years when he and when he and Rachel decided to move uh-huh. past the the, uh-huh. the, the father daughter relationship? Was that awkward?
8: I, I would think that first time. I would hope she was at least over eighteen by that. Yeah, point. yeah. I would I would assume so. <laughs> you you got to wonder if he called her Heather at least once in bed. <laughs> <laughs> His Bonnie Heather.
7: Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. I can't believe it's been 300 episodes. It's really been more like 412 or something like that, if you count all the bonus episodes and all those kind of things. Call me Johnny 600 if they knew the truth. As the year is winding up, 2016, I go through and I'm looking at the best and worst you know the most and least downloads of the episodes from the year and one of the most downloaded ones was one of our specials which was on the fantastic four film and then uh you know regular episodes were all you know all over the place but yeah so 300 we'll count this as 300 uh regular episodes so uh thank you very much everybody for listening to the show and uh god i can't am i gonna do 300 more this is crazy hopefully But, yeah, if you like the show, go on over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show. Go on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can leave uh, your snarky comments. And then, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll be back again next week and you'll keep on listening.
0: I must
1: leave, my brother.
0: Indeed. Wanted to have your children, they would have been strong and fine. Don't see me, Connor. Let me die in peace. Where are we?
1: We're in the Highlands. side the sun's shining it's not cold you've got your sheepskins on ...and the boots I made for you. Good night, my buddy Heather. It's a kind of magic It's a kind of magic
3: enjoy this show and want more
7: people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support.
8: Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.